Welcome to the first of a three-part audio series focusing on one of the most rapidly evolving parts of medical oncology, management of renal cell carcinoma. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. You're about to hear highlights of a clinical investigator think tank with Drs. Michael Atkins, Robert Figlin, Tom Hudson, Eric Yonash, Robert Mozer, and David Quinn. Over the next few months, two more audio programs with different formats will address this fascinating field. To better understand the needs of practicing oncologists in this area, we conducted in-depth interviews with members of the U.S. Oncology Network, and we integrated into this program questions these physicians wished for the program to address. By far, the most common question from practicing oncologists related to the challenges of selecting first-line therapy of advanced disease and the sequence of therapy thereafter and management of side effects of two important new classes of agents for this disease, VEGF tyrosine kinase inhibitors and mTOR inhibitors. To begin, Dr. Atkins comments on the selection of first-line therapy. There are three different treatment approaches that are now active in kidney cancer. There is immunotherapy, there is VEGF pathway inhibition, there is TOR pathway inhibition, and trying to decide for individual patients what is the best treatment to start first and what's the best sequence of treatments to use for that particular patient, that particular tumor. I think there are patients where interferon first or an immunotherapy first makes sense and is the right treatment. There are clearly patients where a TOR inhibitor may be the best treatment to give first, and there's a lot of patients where VEGF pathway inhibitor is the best treatment to give first, and I think we need to sort that out, and just because someone responds to a TOR inhibitor second line doesn't mean that they wouldn't have done better if you had identified that their tumor was sensitive to a TOR inhibitor and you gave it to them first. Eric, would you possibly also add a fourth option to the initial approach to an individual when to actually initiate treatment and perhaps coming up with a strategy to better understand how to actually bring that to bear? Would it be by performing short order repeat imaging and those individuals who have completely stable disease maybe can be spared initial therapy and the relatively ineffective therapy that helps a small number of individuals followed by more effective therapy being the same might be suggesting to us that there's a substantial group of individuals that don't need to be treated initially and the initiation of the more effective therapies can be started at which point in time we see the disease is playing its hand. So Eric, can you describe a patient who you might just follow? An older individual, somebody in their mid-70s, who had a nephrectomy three years ago, who now presents with relatively slow-growing bilateral pulmonary nodules, who's too old for hydrocyl 2 who has excellent performance status, and states quite clearly that quality of life is paramount. They're not being bothered by this disease, and it's clear that it is not moving at a rapid pace and it's not surgically resectable. So this is a sort of individual that you could just get a sense over time whether or not this is changing quickly or not. We hear a lot about, for example, in prostate cancer, that a lot of men are uncomfortable with watching weight, even for PSA relapse. Now we're talking about pulmonary nodules. How do people, even older people, respond in that kind of situation to the idea of just observation? 
it varies tremendously from individual to individual. And I think as many therapies there are available now, there are opinions of individuals. This is clearly not an approach that everyone is comfortable with. And it's actually, often it's something that the patient themselves will actually bring to the table and say, look, is there a possibility for us not to initiate treatment right now and provide reasons, the graduation, the cruise, the other life events? And in that situation, sometimes we do that. So Bob Mozer, how do you approach this in your practice? I think it's made on a case-by-case basis between a discussion with the doctor and the patient. There's no clear optimal timing. The other point that Eric made that's important is the quality of life of the patient. Quality of life reflects a number of different things. It reflects disease response and symptoms related to disease. It relates to how the patient feels about his treatment. Doesn't necessarily directly correspond to toxicity. There has been a number of different studies that have been done, and the sinitinib trial included extensive quality of life piece that showed that quality of life was improved for sinitinib-treated patients compared to interferon. And I guess if you include tumor response, that kind of makes it a little bit more complicated as opposed to just side effects. But I want to ask Tom, if we could do a study looking first-line therapy, BEV alone versus BEV plus interferon versus sunitinib, what will we see in terms of tolerability of the three approaches and efficacy? Well, I think many of us would like to see a trial like that done. There's much more important scientific questions to ask, though, with our limited patient population. But I think what we would probably find is a more tolerable side effect profile in regards to the chronic toxicities that we see that we know impact ability of patients to take sinitinib for a long period of time, that being the hand-foot syndrome, that being the level of fatigue, mucositis, GI toxicity, hypertension, will be shared among all three arms. But the fatigue, which is the big issue when you pull patients as to why they can't stay in therapy for a long time, would be significantly less with the bevacizumab alone arm. So I think that arm, most people would agree, would be less toxic. The combination arm, I think we would share a lot of the issues, minus hand-foot syndrome, and mucositis that we see with the sinitinib arm. So I think sinitinib would be probably the more toxic of the three. How about efficacy? I think the efficacy right now, in my mind, in my bias, looking at the level one evidence, sinitinib is the de facto most active agent that we have based on the published data right Mike? now. So first of all, there is a trial that's gone on in France comparing sinitinib to bevacizumab and interferon. So we will have data comparing side effects and efficacy, even though it's just a phase two trial from the French group. I wanted to go back to Eric's comment, though, and say that one of the most common referrals that I get right now of untreated kidney cancer patients is the type of patient that Eric described, where the patient wants some sort of treatment, the community oncologist isn't sure that it's really the right time to start, and they refer the patient to me. And if our group says, you can wait, the patient feels more reassured about being observed. And so that's a common thing that we do is watch patients until there's significant progression that may sometime in the subsequent months lead to symptoms, and then we start treatment. Bob Figlin? Brian Reaney and Bernardo Scudier are actually beginning a trial of immediate versus delayed therapy in patients with very defined parameters 
where watchful waiting could be a choice and then moving on. So I think that over time, if they can complete that trial, we may get some objective sense of whether early starting versus late starting is an appropriate thing. What agent are they using? Sunitinib. The other thing that I would just say, and this is just, again, to be a bit provocative, I'm not sure that our quality of life instruments, which were developed during the era of cytotoxic chemotherapy, are the appropriate instruments that need to be testing quality of life questions in the era of targeted therapy. And in fact, I would like to see some of those instruments validated in these patient populations to see if they can actually discriminate between the kinds of toxicities that we see with these agents versus the kinds of toxicities that were chosen when those instruments were developed. In Bob's point about the comparability of quality of life with sunitinib, I'd like to see us be a little bit more aggressive in understanding what the appropriate quality of life instrument might be in the era of targeted therapy specific to renal cell carcinoma. It's interesting, Tom. You know, Eric brought up an older patient. What about age and renal cell intolerance of these agents? Well, based on what's been published so far from the pivotal trials where they actually broke it out by age, they did not see a difference in tolerability or efficacy of the agents or ability to stay on duration of therapy differences between age groups. But clearly one factor is that you could certainly have a younger person that is very symptomatic from their cancer that may need therapy. They may not be able to tolerate a therapy. So I wouldn't just hang it on chronologic age. So Bob Motzer, how do you approach older patients in your practice, particularly patients in their 80s? I think the important thing is the individual's function. It's not the chronological age. I don't think we should dose just based on chronological age. That's been shown in multiple cancers with chemotherapy and so forth. It's the patient's functional status. So if they have an adequate functional status, then they should start at full doses with the TKIs. So Eric, speaking of older people, you have a 72-year-old man. Can you tell us what happened to him? Yeah, so this is a 72-year-old individual with metastatic renal cell carcinoma, essentially had had an nephrectomy and had relatively extensive metastatic disease. And we started on a standard dose of sunitinib, 50 milligrams by mouth, four weeks on and two weeks off. He developed a number of the side effects, including fatigue, hypertension, diarrhea, and hand foot syndrome, the loss of taste in the mouth. And what was interesting, and I think is fairly typical, is that these symptoms began in the third week of therapy, felt fairly well for the first few weeks, and then third week was bad, fourth week was really bad. Fortunately, did demonstrate a good minor response in the scans. And what we did for him was for his subsequent cycles to give him sunitinib 50 milligrams by mouth, 14 days on and seven days off, and then restaged and found that there was a continued regression, but his quality of life really was substantially improved. And I think this case raises the question of whether we've really optimized the scheduling of these agents. If we think of what's happening at the level of the tumor and at the level of the host, the development of intolerance in the host tissue might have a very different kinetic from the tumor and that we might end up having effect on the tumor right away, but that the host has more sophisticated resistance to the side effects that then is overwhelmed at a point in time. And that probably varies very much from person to person, as we're going to be talking about there's polymorphisms in individuals. So is it possible that by exploring different dosing schedules that we maintain the efficacy, but we do not actually cause damage to the host tissue? I was fascinated by this. I hadn't heard about trying two weeks on, one week off. Tom, what do we know about that or other schedules for that matter? And have you seen this kind of phenomena where just changing the schedule worked or helped? 
Absolutely. In practice, have we tried alternative dosing strategies and selected individuals? Absolutely. Is there data to help guide us into an optimal non-traditional schedule moving beyond four week on two week off? There is not. Bob Mocher is leading a trial, Bob Mocher and Bob Figlin, the phase two renal effect trial, which has finished enrollment, which will look at two different dosing strategies, that being either continuous dosing at 37.5 versus the traditional 50 milligram four week on two week off. Outside of that, we really don't have an idea as to what would be an alternative dosing strategy to use. Dr. Jonas brings up a great point. Many of us feel that we haven't completely explored all the potential opportunities to optimize therapy for our patients. We already know based on the pharmacokinetic data that exists with the drugs that there is wide interpatient pharmacokinetic variability and we haven't figured out how to optimize. We also have data that tells us more of a drug is better, that more drug exposure as measured by AUC produces greater efficacy with many of these drugs. So in practice, what I would do if I had a patient that was having stable disease or maintained response on traditional dose sutent but was developing side effects that were impacting quality of life, I would consider either dose reduction or sometimes when I have done dose reduction and we scan, we now see progression. We go back up to the 50 milligram dose, we recapture control, and so then I'm trying to change the schedule where I'm trying to keep the 50 milligram dose level because it seems to be that's the dose that's needed, but then I try to change the administration schedule from the four week on, two week off to something like two week on, one week off, which is what Dr. Jonas did. So I think that's reasonable in selected individuals. What we don't want to be doing is just doing that in everyone as our initial maneuver. I think what we need to do is try to manage toxicities and only use alternative dosing strategies when needed. When you say managing toxicities, for example, in this man, what were the things that really were the major problems that were concerning him? It was the fatigue and the loss of taste. I mean, these are the things that he was really, his ability to actually perform his activities of daily living were really impaired by the fatigue. So Tom, what kind of supportive measures can you use for fatigue? Well, that becomes challenging. First of all, it's been well described that some of these TKIs can induce a hypothyroidism. So anyone that has seen more fatigue, one should be checking periodically the thyroid function test and then intervening with an agent such as Synthroid. That may help improve fatigue in some individuals in which hypothyroidism is developing. Outside of that, when I see fatigue, I'm not a doctor that generally uses stimulants, although many private practice community oncologists would feel very comfortable using agents such as Ritalin. I personally don't recommend that, and I actually would consider dose interruption or dose reduction if the fatigue was getting to a level that was impacting quality of life. Certainly, you have to look at other things that cause fatigue, anemia, renal cell carcinoma has been associated with cortisol changes, and some people become hypoadrenal, so you need to check for other things that would be easily fixed, but many times it's just the drug, and sometimes you need to consider lowering the dose in some patients. So Eric, this doesn't seem that unusual of a case. I mean, is it your usual practice to change the schedule like this for sunitinib toxicity or decrease the dose, as Tom says, which is more traditional, I guess? With the idea that the AUC of drug delivery over a six-week period is probably a determinant of outcome. We actually try to change the schedule as much as possible with the idea of actually maintaining the largest amount of drug delivery. And this is, I think, a very important question, and I wonder whether it is something that's worthy of a clinical trial. Clearly, we have cluttering of clinical trials in the community, but as sunitinib probably will remain one of the most important agents for the near future, finding a way to actually maintain efficacy and improving tolerability in a 
preventative manner as opposed to having to deal with the side effects, preventing the side effects might actually be a contribution. So Bob, I'm curious what you think about this pharmacologically as well as clinically. When we get to see if we can agree on an algorithm, for example, would you be okay with saying, well, you could either decrease 12.5 or go this change in schedule two out of three weeks? I think it's important to stay with the data that you have, the evidence-based data. I adhere to the way that it was given that showed the efficacy and the safety in the phase three trial. In those studies, we generally dose reduce for toxicity and adhere to the 4-2 schedule. I think that we will have information very shortly with regard to relative efficacy and safety of the continuous versus the 4-2. And I could see that there would be highly selected instances where you could deviate from the standard dosing based on the patient's individual needs, but I really think those are few and far between, and it's important to stay with the dose that you know is safe and effective. So do you have any data yet on the quality of life with these two schedules? No, I think that's we're hoping to have that data for next year's ASCO. That will be our presentation. Dave, any speculations thinking about the pharmacology of sunitinib in terms of what's going on? Well, I think that there are accumulation of particular metabolites of sunitinib and the patients go a subtle green color and some of them will complain of that at the end of the four weeks and some of them will come in with a note from their primary physician saying patient is jaundiced. In actual fact, it's not jaundiced, they're just a, a little green. Green. And they're feeling a little green. Where as do well. you see it in their eyes? Or? Yeah, sclera. And so from lime that, green or? It's a subtle lime green. And so from that perspective, people will come in and say, when I go green, I know I'm going to be sick. And so I think there are cumulative toxicities that occur over the four weeks. They also occur in people that are continuously dosed at 37.5. I think that we just don't notice it so much. And sometimes when you have people on that regimen, you will break them for a week just to sort of give them a rest from things. But I think there's actually a lot in this in the application of the art of medicine. And the optimal dose schedule for an individual patient may be quite difficult to work out. What I worry about when I've got someone on 50 milligrams four weeks on too often I drop the dose is that I think that we're coming out of the therapeutic window for many of them and they seem to progress and re-escalating is a real problem so maintaining what Eric John Ash talked about in terms of the dose density or the area under the curve of dose over six weeks is a real problem and I think that looking at alternative dose scheduling might be one way for us to try and maintain that now what the right scheduling is is an interesting issue and I think that the two weeks on one off schedule which we have experimented with ourselves does allow some patients to maintain that dose density if you like I'd like to see it looked at prospectively but before we do that I'd really like to see the results of the renal effects trial and I talk to patients about there being two schedules where we have good evidence, the 50 milligram four week on, two week off, and then the 37.5 continuous and going outside of those schedules can be problematic. Interesting. Tom? Yeah, so Neil, what I think that us around the table will agree on consensus, it sounds like, is that more of drug appears to be better as far as efficacy, that a drug exposure seems to matter. Do you all agree? It's like the old chemo stories and a lot of tumors. Mike, do you pretty much buy into that? I mean, how much data do we have supporting this correlation of, is it peak levels or exposure? What was the AUC? Was it Ethan Hawke that presented initially the pharmacokinetic study from Snidnib showing that AUC correlates with efficacy. We've seen that with Oliver Rixey's data 
presented this year is ASCO with Exidinib. We have internal data with Pazopinib that has not been released. So it appears that with some of these drugs that that is indeed the case. So as a general guiding therapeutic guideline, Mike, do you buy into that? I think the data suggests that more drug is better. I think that we've gotten into a situation where we're dosing people based on pill size, not based on body size. And it's wrong probably to assume that the blood levels, which are probably most important, are the same in a 50-kilogram woman versus a 150-kilogram man getting the same size of pill. And I think that theoretically, if this were the treatment that we were going to use in the future, it might make sense to have more dosing sizes available and to dose people based on blood levels the way we do with antibiotics or anticonvulsants because we're trying to probably hit a certain degree of inhibiting the receptor in order to see the effect. The trouble with these drugs like sunitinib is that they're multi-kinase inhibitors and some of the targets that they hit may be contributing to the toxicity but not adding anything to the efficacy. And the hope is that some of the newer drugs that are being tested, which are more selectively active against the VEGF pathways, may have less off-target toxicity. They may have more on-target toxicity, but that might hopefully be associated with still better tolerance and a relationship between toxicity and efficacy. David? In what situations would you consider starting serafinib as first-line therapy? In what situations would you consider one of the two mTOR inhibitors as first-line therapy? Okay. Well, I think that if I'm going to pick a VEGF TKI, sunitinib has the best data. So for most patients, I'm going to use that. There are particular patients that I might be concerned about, principally with cardiac pre-existent cardiac issues, particularly reduction of ejection fraction, but also a sort of grayer group, if you like, of people that have had prior coronary disease that now may be stable. Some patients who are not stable, patients with atrial fibrillation, which is very common in this population. But for a patient who's got impaired cardiac status, I might go with serafinib ahead of sunitinib because of selected toxicity with sunitinib reduction of left ventricular ejection fraction in a small proportion of patients. What do we know about serafinib and ejection fraction? We have not seen, at least to this point, the same proportion of patients develop what's felt to be a significant reduction in ejection fraction of, say, around 10% with serafinib. It does occur. And I think that the people that make serafinib are altering their label to include the 1 or 1.2% of patients that have been observed on clinical trials that have had either cardiac failure or that reduction. And so from that perspective, it seems like it's a safer drug, but it hasn't been tested and we're waiting for data from several prospective trials, most particularly in the adjuvant setting, the ASSURE trial, ECOG-2805, comparing serafinib and sunitinib in the perioperative setting will provide some data directly comparing the two. Mike, are there any kind of guidelines in terms of frequency of getting MUGAs or ECHOs in patients in sunitinib, serafinib? I think before we start someone on sunitinib off trial, we probably would get a baseline cardiac echo or MUGA scan. And we don't routinely get repeat scans. You get it for serafinib also? No. And we don't routinely get follow-up scans, but we have a low threshold if patients have symptoms that make us potentially worried that they might have a cardiac nature. 
What about the mTOR inhibitors, David? We have a lot of questions. I get the feeling that in community practice, even, well, temsorolimus hasn't maybe been used that much. I'm not sure people are really clear about it. Well, I think the clearest indication for temsorolimus is in the first line setting for poor risk patients. Now, you don't see them that often. They're only about 15 or 20% of a broad renal practice. I think those of us in academic practice tend to see a few more of them. And so from that perspective, for your community oncologist, picking that group, which is a very select group, can be difficult. Where Temsorolimus is getting a lot of usage based on market use studies is in the second and third line. And of course, our data is not as good in that setting, although we have some data coming from the 404 trial that will look at patients who have failed sunitinib and compare serafinib and temsorolimus, and I think Tom Hudson's one of the leads on that. And so that that will provide us some data in that setting. So, and I will go with temsorolimus for a poor risk patient who falls into that group. The other group of patients outside of that setting that I will treat with temsorolimus are patients that have metastatic predominant sarcomatoid differentiated cancer. And we don't have a strong evidence base to go on there, but our experience in patients in our indigent population who present to the Los Angeles County Hospital is that many of them are late and seem to have sarcomatoid histology and they seem to have a major symptomatic benefit from temsorolimus. That's something that's difficult to study and if we're looking at individual groups of patients I'd be interested to look at as to whether there's an individual benefit there. So Tom, we have you know the flippy scores and lymphoma, et cetera. Is there actually a way to determine numerically whether a patient has, quote, poor risk, or is it more global type of clinical situation? Well, what's been employed in the pivotal clinical trials is the memorial criteria. There are criteria that have been developed at UCLA. There's criteria from the Cleveland Clinic and there's criteria in Europe, but they all seem to share the same type of clinical factors that incorporate into them. Those are things looking at the patient performance status, time from diagnosis to treatment, corrected calcium level, LDH, and the presence of anemia. Many of these can be assessed very quickly on the first visit with the patient just looking at the labs. The practical matter is, do we do that in our own clinics? Do we actually sit there and tally up a score? No, but I think we kind of eyeball the patient and get a sense. Now, if they were going on a clinical trial, you would absolutely need to calculate a score. Most patients that have the poor risk features have symptoms of their disease. And these symptoms of their disease manifest as the hypercalcemia, that you'll pick these patients up relatively easily. Eric, when I first heard about this, we saw the data presenting, I was thinking, is this just the way the trials were designed, or is there really a biologic basis? I mean, is there a reason to think that an mTOR inhibitor would work better in a patient with aggressive disease biologically? The answer is maybe, and I think we need to actually understand what the biology of this more rapidly progressing patients are. Upregulation of the PI3 kinase pathway is associated with those individuals who are less likely to respond to an anti-angiogenic agent. Whether or not that's a marker for those individuals who have this type of biology or not, I think is something that needs to be validated prospectively. So let's get more into the issue of sequencing of therapy and management of toxicity. Mike, can you present your case? This is a woman that gives an example of using all the tools that we have potentially available to treat kidney cancer. So she presented in March of 2002 with hematuria left renal mass, underwent a nephrectomy, turned out to have clear cell cancer, recurred in August of 2004 with lung metastasis, multiple by the dominant mass, 
One was removed to confirm it was metastatic renal cancer. The other disease was too small to treat at that point. She was followed, developed a CNS metastasis about six months later. That was treated with surgery and stereotactic radiation. Eventually had progression of her systemic disease in October of 2005, treated with high-dose IL-2, had a complete response but had isolated progression about eight months later, had that resected, went another two years before she required additional systemic therapy at that point, which is July of 2008, now six years after her initial presentation and four years after her presentation of metastatic disease, she received sunitinib and she had toxicity related to sunitinib that included in the first cycle hand-foot reaction, mucositis, hypertension, fatigue, which started 17 days after treatment. She struggled to get through the full 28 days of treatment got cycle two, but was unable to get all 28 days. What did you do for cycle two? Did you make adjustments? Well, we started her on an antihypertensive agent. We tell people, and this came out of the Mario Lacatur experience, who get hand-foot syndrome, that they should try to, to the extent possible, stay off their feet or do not aggressively use their hands during the first two weeks of therapy because we think that's when the damage happens that leads to the ulcers on the skin in weeks three and four. And we told them to wear comfortable fitting shoes and to be very careful about their mouth care to potentially reduce the risk of mucositis. But we couldn't do much about the fatigue, and that's really what limited her ability to get all 28 days of treatment in the second cycle. Was the stomatitis the non-ulcerative stomatitis, or there were actually ulcers? I think there were one or two ulcers that she had primarily on her lip. Yeah, because one of the things that we've seen is this inflammatory reaction in the mouth, but really not associated with ulcers, where their taste changes, their appetite changes, their ability to tolerate acidic foods change. But you look in their mouth, and you just don't see a lot. And So it's not like a 5-FU mucositis. This was some what were almost cold sores on her lip. Yeah. So they may not have even been related. Yeah, because I think that the, at least the stomatitis, I'd be interested in what other people think. The stomatitis that I've seen with the TKIs is so very different than the cytotoxic chemotherapy stomatitis. And the traditional managements of the cytotoxic chemotherapy stomatitis, I have not found to be quite helpful except for good mouth care. And what has been helpful? What's been helpful is reinforcing that as long as they can maintain their weight, identify foods that they can take, stay away from certain kinds of liquids that cause the inflammation to become worse, we've been pretty much able to maintain those patients on full doses. And I think one of the things we'll come back to is probably the single most important thing for physicians when talking to patients is to prepare patients for toxicities before they ever occur. Because when you tell a patient that this might occur and that it is from the drug, it's far less frightening. And it's only been the rare patient that actually has lost weight with the stomatitis where we've actually had the dose modify. Tom? Yeah, so along that lines, I think when you're starting a patient off on a therapy such as sunidinib, one of the new TKIs, that you, during that first cycle, make contact with the patient on several occasions. I will often see patients every two weeks, that first six-week cycle, for the sole purpose of what Bob mentions, to really hone in on the toxicities they're experiencing, talk about a strategy for managing the toxicities. And especially with sunitinib, which is a four-week on, two-week off, 
you tend to have recurrent toxicities with each cycle. And some of them will get worse with repetitive dosing and repetitive cycles. Some, there is a tachyphylaxis, some get better. But it's generally the same manifestation of toxicity. So if you can develop in that first six-week cycle a strategy to help manage the toxicity, it helps in the long run. And what I've seen in community oncology practices sometimes will be a patient will start a drug such as sinidinib. They won't see them back for six weeks or longer. And then, then you run into problems then with management of side effects. This lady sounds like she had a pretty rough first course. This is unusual, I think, for a first course to have someone really not be able to get through easily the full 28 days. And to make matters worse, it appeared that after the two cycles, she already had disease progression in spine, even though her lung disease was a little bit better. So she needed to have that treated with a cyber knife, which we could do one treatment and then resume treatment. And we thought maybe part of the reason why she wasn't responding as well as we would like is we weren't able to give her the full 28 days of treatment. So we had to reduce the dose to 37.5 to try to get the full four weeks of treatment in, which we did. And then by the end of four cycles, she was clearly progressing in the lungs as well, potentially indicating that we couldn't get enough dose into her in order to see the benefit or her disease was resistant to that approach. But interestingly enough, and the reason why I chose this was we then have a trial of Everolimus following TKI failures where we have baseline PET scans and additional PET scans as the reason for the trial. So she went on that, and she was very symptomatic by the time she went on. She already was having some dyspnea from her lung disease. And she received this, and within two weeks, she was remarkably better from a symptomatic standpoint. And the PET-CT scan showed that her lung nodules were much less PET-avid, and the subsequent CT scan showed that she had a partial response. And she remains on the Everolimus six cycles in with a partial response, and where she was approaching performance status two because of her dyspnea, when she started, she's now performance at zero scuba diving and working full-time. So what we're actually dealing with, though, are different toxicity issues that we see with the TOR inhibitors, which include hyperglycemia, which we've had to start her on an oral hypoglycemic. How high did her glucose go? It's been running in the 200 to 300 range, and the hemoglobin A1C is elevated. No prior problems? No. Nope hyperlipidemia, which we're not doing anything about, although we're watching. What kind of hyperlipidemia? Just cholesterol? Well, it's or? mixed. No, it's cholesterol and triglycerides. It's triglycerides predominantly. Predominantly triglycerides, yeah. usually. Yeah. yeah, triglycerides the big one. How high were her triglycerides? 400s. She developed anemia, which even though she was anemic and her hemoglobin was in the 8 range, she was not feeling symptomatic from that, but we've had to transfuse her just to keep making sure that doesn't become an issue. She's developed perinichia, which are typical nail reactions that we've seen with the TOR inhibitors with ingrown fingernails that get inflamed and people have to be very careful to clip their nails carefully and to make sure that they're not a problem. And she's also developed chelitis. So she's been very careful about eating spicy foods and things like that. But aside from those issues, she is back to performance status 100%. And how would you characterize where she's at right now globally in terms of side effects? Tolerable, not a major problem, moderate problem, how much? She says these are not a problem. 
and I can function with this. She's a physician. She works full-time now. She's been vacationing in the Caribbean in April, scuba diving even. So. And you've maintained her at full dose, 10 milligrams a day? Mm-hmm. So I think this highlights not only the potentially different toxicities with, I think, an extreme case of the toxicity of sunitinib in that someone couldn't tolerate it, but also surprising that someone didn't respond to sunitinib. And it may have been in this case, if we had a marker, this was a patient who we would have been better off putting on a TOR inhibitor first. It also highlights that you can potentially delay treatment for a while. In this case, it was three-plus years since the diagnosis of metastatic disease before she actually started one of the what we would call standard treatments. And whether that was a good idea or not, because maybe she would have responded better to sunitinib if we had treated her a year earlier, but I'm not sure we would have gotten to a further time point on the sunitinib than she got right now. And just as a question to you in terms of your practice, do you generally involve other practitioners for the management of the elevated lipids and elevated glucose, or do you manage that within the context of your own practice? We're managing it ourselves, although I think we probably would do a better job if we got some input from the endocrinologist and even the primary care physician. I mean, we, we're fortunate taken... we have fellows who were recently internists who we can ask <laughs> what to do. I mean, what we've done is we've made a conscious decision to get our internal medicine colleagues involved. So for our hyperglycemias that require any hyperglycemics, And for our hyperlipidemias, we really do get our cardiovascular physicians and our endocrinologists involved early. And part of that, and this may be somewhat self-serving, is that it would take me a lot of time to manage those aspects of their disease, which would take me away from seeing more patients with kidney cancer, where I have to render Uh, opinions and recommendations for the management of the cancer. So we've built out a support team, and I'm just wondering whether that in some way is the nature of where medical oncology is going, especially as it relates to side effect management as they become more robust and different. I think everybody does it differently. I mean, certainly with fellows right out of medicine, they feel comfortable with that. But for me, it was easier to engage my colleagues and have them manage those other non-cancer-related side effects than to do them myself. Do you think that was a model that would work in a community oncology setting? I do, actually. And the reason I think it would is because I think community oncologists very much have a network of referrals that come to them and referrals that go back the other way to people. And I think it would require training because clearly what we've learned about the oral medications, at least in our own practices, is our physician extenders, nurses, and physician assistants are absolutely critical in the management. In your case, it's obviously the physician extender is the fellow. And I think in practice, where doctors really have an enormous volume of patients to see on a regular basis, I just don't know how willing they're going to be able to be spending that amount of time handling the side effects as opposed to the cancer. But I'd be interested in other people's view of that. Why don't we explore also the issue of the mTOR inhibitors, both of them, and what the difference is in terms of toxicity and efficacy that we know about, and particularly what it is that would cause you to consider dose reduction or discontinuation. David? 
So the obvious is that temsorolimus is given weekly intravenously. Everolimus is a pill each day. Structurally, they're very similar. I think the dose scheduling is just the issue, and I think that impacts maybe more toxicities than efficacy, but we don't have evidence. They've never been compared head-to-head at least in this disease. So from that perspective, I find temsorolimuses sometimes difficult to give in older patients. They have some of the things that Mike's case brings out of high glucose, elevated triglycerides and cholesterol that are an issue. But they get more of other sorts of side effects. And we've seen with temsorolimus, often after about a month's dosing, some quite bad mucositis and general fatigue decline in older patients that we tend not to see in younger patients. And I generally think that a younger patient will tolerate it pretty well. Our feeling is that Evrolimus, given on the daily schedule, is perhaps better tolerated in older patients, but I don't have an evidence base for that. And what I'm talking about is fatigue and their general ability to cope. Dose modification with Evrolimus, I haven't had to dose modify very often, but the reason I dose modify is if they get non-infective pneumonitis as a side effect of the drug. And if that occurs, there are certain situations where I might want to drop the dose, other times not. Lots of times the patients are well, they have a mild cough, and it's something you pick up on their restaging CT scan. And the addition of corticosteroids in the form of oral prednisone is sufficient to make it go away. So you don't stop the drug? No, not routinely. Now, there's a very important management issue here. If a patient's on an mTOR inhibitor and they have an infiltrate in their lung and they're sick, then in my opinion, you must stop the drug. And their patients, we're very aggressive with, we admit them to hospital and we organize for them to be assessed acutely by a pulmonologist and have a bronchoalveolar lavage because we have had a number of patients who've had infections that have contributed to this. We've had a number of atypical pneumonias. We've had our first case of pneumocystis on tor inhibition. We've had a couple of atypical mycobacterial infections that we would not have diagnosed, uh, at least very easily, if we had not have done that. And then fungal infections are also an issue not just in the lung but in other areas because if you recollect that the current TOR inhibitors that we have derived from rapamycin, they're analogs, and the first therapeutic analog was cerulimus, which is a widely used immunosuppressive. And I don't think that the doses we give are as immunosuppressive, perhaps as cerulimus in organ transplantation, but the parallels are important. How often do you see these kind of unusual infections? Unusual infections. It's not that often. I would say it's well less than 5% of patients. But I think that if we look at the experience with TOR inhibition in the trials that have come down, these are patients when they get a serious infection where they can get on trial mortality and I don't think it's very common but for the community oncologist who's treating a few of these patients if they get sick on mTOR it's really something to consider and being aggressive and involving other physicians who can help you aggressively work the patient up and make sure they don't have something that's pretty serious. Bob? The toxicity I think that community oncologists need to be aware of is the non-infectious pneumonitis which is like a signal toxicity with these agents. With the Everolimus pivotal study, there was about 14% of patients that developed non-infectious pneumonitis. Now, for that trial, because of an awareness of that, there was a panel of pulmonary specialists that were put together that helped establish the guidelines for the toxicity management. And the guidelines in the protocol were that if it was a grade 2 toxicity, then the treatment was stopped and interrupted. And if there was improvement of grade 1 or less, then the treatment was restarted. If there was a grade 3 toxicity, 
which generally are symptoms that are interfering with activity daily life, maybe require oxygen, then the treatment was stopped and the dose was reduced for grade three. For the most part, in the 30-plus patients that developed the pneumonitis on the trial, about half were treated with corticosteroids. And I think there was only about four that had treatment actually discontinued for pneumonitis on that study. This case also brings up the issue of the sequence of therapy, second, third line therapy, et cetera, Tom. We do have a lot of questions about second, third line therapy and also the choice of mTOR inhibitor. Obviously, there's an interest in going with the oral formulation. What do we know about that? Well, we don't know if there's an appropriate sequence to use these agents. And one of the goals right now, I believe, is to try to enable your patient to receive exposure to all of the active drugs at some point in their treatment course. We clearly recognize what we should be attempting, frontline therapy. Most patients should get a VEGF-directed therapy. What one moves to second line right now is unclear. It's a topic of clinical trials. There's the randomized phase 3-404 trial, which randomizes patients to temsorolimus, an mTOR inhibitor, versus Nexavar, another VEGF pathway inhibitor. And so a lot of the decisions that are made in community practice really come down to simple either financial concerns of the patient. A lot of patients will receive an IV medication because Medicare will cover the IV medication. There's not an out-of-pocket cost to the patient. Toxicity, even though we have clinical trial data to suggest if you have X side effect from sinidinib, you are no greater risk of getting that side effect with serafinib, there's still a lot of belief that that may happen. So some patients don't want to attempt another VEGF inhibitor therapy. In my experience, and when I've enrolled patients on the pivotal Everolimus trial, it was in the third line setting. So my patients had already received sinidinib and serafinib, and then they went on Everolimus. And most of them, one, tolerated Everolimus extremely well. It was somewhat like a breath of fresh air. They had significantly less toxicities. I'm actually happy when I have a patient that already has pre-existing diabetes or cholesterol because they're either already on medications needed, so it becomes less challenging to manage them. And people do very well with these therapies. I would only dose modify an mTOR inhibitor unless there was a drug-drug interaction that would require that. I've not had to dose reduce these agents because of toxicity concerns. Bob, you had a comment? From my perspective, I think there are patients that are primarily refractory to agents like sunitinib. And I think Mike's example is one of such patients. And I think the randomized trials that Tom is running comparing temsorolimus with serafinib may get at some of that. But I do think there are differences in patients who march right through a TKI versus those who've been on it for an extended period of time who then progress in the areas of known disease versus those that progress in other sites of disease. And I personally think that even though it's not completely yet evidence-based, I've certainly had patients referred to my practice where they've had what appears to be primary refractoriness to a VEGF receptor TKI, and I recommend almost uniformly in those patients that they go directly to an mTOR inhibitor. And I don't know that an agent like serafinib might not be helpful, but it smells to me clinically like their tumors are somewhat dependent on a different pathway. What about cycling the patient back to a therapy they've already had? Does that ever work? Well, there's certainly anecdotes in the literature that people talk about and people talk about at meetings where receive sunitinib for a period of time, marched through option B and C, and then went back to sunitinib with some stability or modest benefit. So I don't think we know 
whether subsequent treatments completely remove the ability to respond back to an antiangiogenic. And I would just put out provocatively, although we talk about combination therapy, we talk about sequencing therapy, the one thing that we haven't talked about, which is prevalent in the prostate cancer literature, is that you would take an agent that targets a pathway, and instead of switching, you would add And once we have a better sense of the combination therapies and their toxicity profiles, maybe those are some of the questions that we can start to ask. I certainly think that there are many patients who have objective progression on these targeted therapies, but the objective progression is still in the setting of tolerating treatment, no new areas of disease, objective progression using rhesus criteria. And one wonders, I wonder, whether continuing that treatment but adding something to it is as good as switching. Bob, what about the issue of first-line therapy in the patient with poor risk disease? Is it reasonable to consider Everlimus as first-line therapy? Well, I personally make recommendations based on the evidence, and so I will adhere to Temsorolimus in that population. I mean, I think that's a very good question, and point of fact, we are initiating a large randomized trial of Everlimus versus sunitinib. It's a trial that's looking at the sequence. It's going to be everolimus followed by sunitinib versus sunitinib followed by everolimus. So we will develop some first-line data for everolimus in that trial. But in the absence of the trial, I mean, I would recommend temsorolimus for the poor-risk patients. Again, sort of trying to tease out how strongly you feel about this, going back to the second opinion thing. If a patient came to you and the first doc had recommended Everlimus, poor risk, first line situation, would you say, I think you should definitely not do it? Or, you know, that's an option, but I don't think it's your best option. Well, I think according to the evidence-based medicine, there is no data for Everlimus in first line. They're related agents structurally. They're given in a different way. They have different pharmacodynamics, so I don't think we can say that one is exactly the same as another. And I think, in particular, in those poor-risk patients with a very short survival, you have to make sure that you adhere to the data. Tom? Yeah, just to expand on the point that Mike made, I think when you look at a patient with metastatic kidney cancer that comes in with therapy and receives an agent like sininib, there's really kind of three groups of patients. The combined clinical benefit rate is about 80% with these agents. So there's a 20% patient population that is going to be primary refractory. There's also, in the people that have a clinical benefit, there's about 40% of those that really have measurable tumor reduction, at least resist-defined. But then there's that other group of 40% of patients that many of which don't really have tumor shrinkage, They actually have slow growth. And it'll be interesting to see in the future, the hope is that we'll be able to, through molecular profiling, be able to separate these out at a scientific level so we can see are there different pathways, is the biology of the cancer different that would lead us to a different therapy strategy. So I completely agree with Michael's points that he made about in someone that's primary refractory, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to continue hitting the VEGF. And I hope the science backs us up and we really show that mTOR may be the dominant pathway and we should go with that therapy. To talk about sequencing agents, now what I have done, it's been my experience in my practice, I will commonly have patients out fourth, fifth line, sixth line sometime with good performance status with their kidney cancers. And one of my goals, again, is to try to get them exposure to all of the active drugs. And I'm pretty rigorous following clinical trial criteria for good or bad based on toxicity management, dose reductions, and the definition of progression. That's a big black box area now. How do we define progression? But 
Nonetheless, people would have had all the available therapies. We have a paucity of clinical trials in the fifth-line setting. Performance status certainly reasonable. Patient wants more therapy. Your options are phase one trial, referral, no treatment, hospice, or to consider going back to an agent that they've previously had. And then we generally try to choose an agent that they've done best with. They tolerated the best, had the best response with, and many patients that ends up being sedative. And so myself, along with several investigators around the country, are pulling data now to look at what kind of benefit that people get with re-challenge of a drug like sininib at a later point. And in my own experience, anecdotally, I've seen patients that will have tumor regressions again. A lot of times patients need to go on a lower dose to begin with, 37.5, because their ability to tolerate therapy is significantly less, and they're able to stay on the therapy for quite some time with at least stable disease on it. So that's what I'm doing. I have probably five or six patients that have met that criteria. Mike? I think this point highlights another gap in our knowledge in that this patient is not going to go forever on Everlimus. And when she becomes resistant to Everlimus, we have no idea what to offer her. So what are you going to do, Mike, when she becomes resistant to Everlimus? I'm hoping I have a clinical trial that looks at a PI3 kinase inhibitor, a dual PI3 kinase mTOR inhibitor okay. or something like that in that setting. But right now I have nothing and I have no idea what to do. So in this particular patient that you presented, it's a bit unusual because she's primarily refractory to sunitinib, and she had some response to interleukin-2, so that's a bit surprising. Yeah, it shows uh, that tumors can evolve, or maybe the yeah. interleukin-2 selected, selected out, out a population. A, a resistant, a more aggressive tumor population. And we don't see that that commonly, but I think what Mike is telling us is that in terms of the VEGF pathway, she's progressed on what was pretty close to full dose pretty quickly. And so on the merry-go-round of the different drugs that we have, which is coming up to six, stops on the merry-go-round now, he's not going to go back to that one the next time and he wants to press the clinical trial button when she progresses. More commonly, what we see with the VEGF TKIs is that some people do progress on what you might consider to be a full dose. And we've already discussed the vagaries of what a full dose is. But for want of a better definition, many patients you dose reduce them and then they progress. And I think that we then get into a gray area where, and it's important for later decision making, you'll switch and go for a different drug. And for the VEGF TKIs, we're now going to tour inhibition with Everlimus as our treatment. But then subsequently, if the patient's been in that setting, I think picking up on what Tom Hudson said, you go back to what they tolerated best or that they had to come off of because of a dose reduction and you would look at another agent in that class that may actually produce a disease control or even a response. In terms of just the whole issue of management of toxicity with these agents, are we generally in agreement in terms of globally how to manage these side effects and toxicity? I think we are globally in agreement, but not with a great deal of evidence about how best to manage. We're globally in agreement that when there's unacceptable toxicity, you have to do something, and that doing something to attend to the toxicity when it has already occurred may not be as effective as a break in treatment, a modification of the dose, a change in schedule. But how best to pick those? I think Bob's point was, if you do it evidence-based, you'll try and keep those patients on as close to full dose as possible, as close to a regular regimen as possible. We're only now starting to ask and answer schedule-dependent questions. But what I find most frustrating is that 
we really don't have the attendant basket of opportunities to address the side effects that we have developed over the last several decades to treat the side effects associated with cytotoxic chemotherapy. And whether that's opportunities for industry to start to think about, are there approaches that are opportunities for drug development for the management of TKI-associated skin disease? I think there probably are, and we need to do that. Are there agents that we need to think about in a prospective way to deal with TKI-induced fatigue? I mean, I think that medical oncologists would welcome carefully controlled trials with some of the more novel agents that are used in other settings for fatigue, as opposed to anecdotally just deciding whether to put the person on a Ritalin-like compound. And I think we need to get to asking questions about patients' toxicities in an objective way similar to what we've done in terms of efficacy. Bob? I think the other thing is is that for people presenting with toxicities, you have to try and manage the toxicity first. And then if you can't manage the toxicity, then dose reduce. For example, hypertension is very common for patients with these different agents. And when people are on full dose of sunitinib or serafinib and they come in with worsening hypertension or new hypertension, one thing that's being done erroneously is just to reduce the dose. But what you need to do is to manage the hypertension and try and maintain the dose. And then if you can't do that, then fall back on dose reduction. And that's kind of the most blatant example, but it follows with the other toxicities as well. And I'd just like to add one thing to that. You know, we talk about cardiac toxicity from targeted agents. Well, we're going to have to start to think about cardiac toxicity from targeted agents where the hypertension has been inadequately managed as a result of the side effect of the drug as opposed to the drug itself producing the side effect. Because as you know, chronic hypertension in an at-risk heart can lead to heart failure. And we need to be more aggressive about that than just to assume that it was sunitinib or another TKI's direct effect on the heart that produced the toxicity. What do we know about that issue in terms of how much it's the hypertension? Well, I actually think that we are not doing a good enough job in managing the cardiac risk factors that occur as a result of treatment. For example, I'm not a diabetician, but I know diabeticians are now thinking about looking at, and this just came out in the literature, the hemoglobin A1C over the last three months to decide how to manage the hyperglycemia as opposed to just looking at fasting glucose. All due respect to our oncologists, most of us don't read that literature in terms of how best to manage hyperglycemia associated with diabetes. And that's why I think that we're having to revisit toxicity management in a way that's more akin to how we were trained as internists than how we were trained as oncologists. David? I think I agree with all those points. And just to look at it in a slightly different way, what used to happen in kidney cancer is there were some of us that would treat the disease and we're in this room but there are other people who are totally nihilistic about the whole approach and they say okay based on the criteria you're going to live somewhere between 14 and 16 months there's really nothing we can do about your disease the treatments are awful and look you know don't worry too much about your blood pressure your cholesterol or your diabetes and things are sort of changed now we've got two things happening the patients are surviving longer 
so they can survive longer to get problems, and we're starting to see them. We have also a variety of effects on each of those parameters, and we've talked about some of the drug effects. We also have indications that in patients that are going to survive a certain amount of time, treating their cholesterol might make a difference to their cancer. And so you've got a big interaction of different factors. And so in terms of treating their cholesterol with statin drugs, altering the outcome for advanced prostate cancer, we have some evolving evidence in that area. And if it pans out, it may also be true for some of the other cancers. So I agree completely with you, Bob, that we need these type of studies. I don't see much enthusiasm for doing these studies, but where would we be in chemotherapy if we didn't have growth factors or better antiemetics or some of the things that have helped us? Probably the biggest advance in cytotoxic chemotherapy was better antiemetics. And we really need these things, and I think we have to figure out how to design and do those trials in these patient populations. And maybe there's a way of potentially doing it in the context of an ongoing trial. But if we take the information that we've gained over the last several decades, many of the companies that developed the antiemetics and the growth factor support were not the companies that developed the cytotoxic therapies. Secondly, many of those companies invested in understanding the biology of what produced the side effect so that we have the central nervous system understanding of the emetogenic zone and we understand how growth factors work with respect to the bone marrow. I guess, Michael, what I would say to you is we have to push either through our own research as hypothesis generating or through collaborations to start to think about what are the mechanisms of fatigue. What are the mechanisms of skin reactions? Because I do believe that, for example, if we understood the mechanisms of fatigue associated with TKI, there are thousands of patients on TKIs where many of us would be willing to prevent the fatigue as opposed to waiting for it to occur if we knew that there was a method to do that. So I think we're going to have to do research, the collateral research, in the areas of TKI-induced effects And just be aware. And the other thing I would just say to David and Bob's point, we just went through Survivor's Day for cancer, and we now have many more kidney cancer survivors. And as we have more and more kidney cancer survivors, whether they be resected patient or the metastatic patient, what we're going to see is the evolution of new kinds of problems. And we're going to have to differentiate between Are those problems related to the treatments that we have given, or are those problems that would have otherwise occurred in a person that is aging, or is it a combination thereof? And I think we have to constantly draw our attention to side effect management, the amelioration of side effects, because the quality of life of our patients can be enhanced if we do so. Tom, what about serafinib? What are the options in terms of dose reduction schedule, et cetera? Yeah, so serafinib is a drug that's given continuously orally at a dose of 400 milligrams twice a day. That's the full dose level. The middle dose level would be 400 milligrams daily, and then the lowest dose level would be 400 milligrams every other day. So the recommendation is that most patients start off at full dose. Dose modifications would be based on toxicities similar to the way toxicities would be managed with other targeted agents. And the main toxicities we saw with serafinib that required dose modification would be hand-foot syndrome, GI-related toxicities, hypertension. There is less fatigue with serafinib than there is with sinidinib, so that isn't much of a player. But hand-foot syndrome can happen quite quickly, so can the skin toxicity. 
So generally, if one develops a toxicity that can't be managed with topical emollients, in the case of hand-foot syndrome, then one would consider dose interruption and then dose reduction. Can you get more specific about what you consider the specific options or pathways? Yeah, so I mean, I think with hand-foot syndrome, the options for treatment that are the emollients. Dr. Atkins mentions about pre-warning patients that this is an expected toxicity, so clearly good hygiene, trying to stay off the feet as much as possible, sometimes even pedicures. Some patients have a lot of callus formation. As far as GI-related issues, if there's any nausea or vomiting, certainly use any antiemetics. We sometimes will use proton pump inhibitors or over-the-counter acid reducers for patients that have dyspepsia. I usually have my patients monitor their blood pressure daily and keep a blood pressure diary. We have seen in the clinical trials that have been done to date that when hypertension develops, it's an early phenomenon. It's something that generally manifests itself within the first eight weeks of therapy with these drugs. So you can usually pick it up early if a patient's keeping a blood pressure log. And I generally will see my patients when they're starting a therapy like serafinib every two weeks for the first four to six weeks until we have an understanding of what the toxicity is. We also reported recently the long-term effects with serafinib from the phase three targets trial, where we actually saw tachyphylaxis happen with this drug, so that after about three to four months of use, a lot of these main toxicities, diarrhea, hand-foot syndrome, become significantly less in severity. So I'll often try to coach my patients to try to rough it through with supportive care, but when necessary, obviously dose reduction. So is it usually dose reduction specifically that you all agree that's the approach to patients who have intolerance? Well, again, I think we've heard that one of the things you should try to do is intervene early on these folks. So if you've let a toxicity already get to the level of grade three or four, then the only way to bring it down to a level that would allow a good running start at tolerating a lower dose would be a dose interruption. So I would only use dose interruption if someone had very severe grade three or four toxicity and then start them up after two to three days after resolution. And it only takes a couple of days for many patients at the next dose level. And then down the road, sometimes we actually consider reescalating the dose in time. Everyone agree with that, Dave? I think prophylactic treatment's very important, and we start them off on the skin treatments, if we can, before they get the drug. And serafinib produces the worst hand foot of these agents. Sinitinib, the pattern's different. In fact, the look is a little different. My nurse practitioner has developed a paradigm where we start them off on lanolin-based creams. We don't use bag bum because it's too messy. And then with an intervention for a urease lotion or cream, if they develop the calyces and referral to a podiatrist for that seems to help quite a lot. We did do a small trial of vitamin B6 for hand foot skin reaction in serafinib and sunitinib. And the conclusion of my nurse practitioner who was running the trial was that hand foot skin reaction, particularly in serafinib patients, improved at about maybe 9, 10, 12 weeks anyway without intervention. And the B6 didn't make a difference, although my premenstrual tension was better when I took it. And so from that perspective, that's what she told me. And she still has me on it. So from that perspective, the vitamin B6 did not make a difference, but at least we were trying to test an intervention. I think they did similar things at Vanderbilt and other places and didn't really find that the B6 made a difference to the hand-foot skin reaction. It would be nice to have some more perspective things. With sunitinib, the hand-foot is much more unpredictable. You can have a patient that's on sunitinib for eight months, has not had it, and then all of a sudden they come in with quite severe pain and hand foot and you think it's sometimes an attack of gout it's so severe and then you may have to stop them 
just because the pain's so bad and then three days later they're entirely better. So there are some pattern differences but I think if you can't control it breaking the patient for up to a week is fine and the other issue just to pick up what Tom said is with serafinib the plasticity of the dose the window seems to be bigger for particular patients in terms of their response so we have patients with long-term responders on 200 a day and I don't understand that at all and then there are other patients where you don't think you've given enough so it's a little complicated in that regard. So with regard to serafinib and the toxicity we've taken the approach although I can't say looking back at it how effective it is that when it gets really severe. We hold the treatment, and then we try to do preventive things and start back on full dose and hope we can get away with it. But if doing all the preventative stuff against their particular treatment, then they get toxicity again, then we know we have to hold the dose and start at a lower dose. But in many of the initial patients, and this is Keith Flaherty's experience, which encouraged us to handle our patients this way, you were able to get back to full dose without getting the same degree of toxicity. Eric? I fully agree with that. We had a trial where we had fairly rigid dose reduction schemata where we were not allowed to re-escalate individuals. And a number of these individuals, when they came off trial, we were then able to re-escalate them because they had progressed and we managed to recontrol their disease. So serafinib clearly is an agent where that tachyphylaxis seems to be more profound in a number of the side effects where and re-escalation is possible. And one thing that we haven't talked about that much yet is diarrhea in terms of the management of that. And what we mainly do is a few things. Imodium is clearly an effective agent. And what we find then moving on to Lomotil afterwards, if Imodium is not effective, helps a subset of individuals. Despite that, it can still be extremely problematic from a quality of life perspective in terms of people not being able to socialize. Metamucil in a small amount of water with one or two ounces of water as opposed to eight ounces of water seems to have a positive effect on the type of diarrhea in both in serafinib and sunitinib treated patients. And it's something that we have been using with patients with some good results. I think that if this is a class effect and it's not going to go away even in the more specific targeted TKIs, clearly a better understanding of the mechanism and coming up with better treatments is going to really help people. Yeah, if I had to pick one toxicity that was a major problem for patients of mine on serafinib long-term, those have been on a year, two years, three years therapy, it's diarrhea management. And with the descriptions my patients would give me, it brought to my mind, could this somehow be pancreatic insufficiency? And so I'd actually had conversations about trying to evaluate agents such as octreotide in these patients that have really severe, uncontrolled cases that are not managed with Imodium, and there hasn't been a lot of interest, but I think that may be something worthy of study. David? I mean, I think this is a class effect with these agents, and long-term, we may manage the diarrhea a little better, but I don't think it gets better. No. I think it's the ongoing thing That's that right. patients complain about. And the steatorrhea issue is interesting, and we've done fecal fats on a number of people, and they don't have enough fecal fat to be in the steatorrheic range, but they often have low-level non-absorption of fat. And the question is now, what do we do with that information? Do you treat them with pancreatic enzyme supplement? Do you try and put them on somatostatin or octreotide therapy? What else can you do? And normally we haven't had it to the point where it's been so severe that we've had to do anything, but I think that they probably have low-level steatorrhea from these drugs, especially when they're treated chronically. And we've created a new syndrome. We now have to work out what to do about it. 
Reflecting back on all the things that we've talked about, what would you like to see change in terms of what people are doing in practice? One of the key things is whether or not people in practice will be able to keep their patients on an agent longer based with optimal information in terms of management of toxicities and understanding of what the limitations of the therapies is. So if that would be one of the things that we can do, then I think we'd really accomplish something. I want to go back to the people understand the issues involved for the patient and for themselves in dealing with these toxicities. I think that trying to decide when you're going to start recognizing that the patient is going to be on these drugs for the rest of their life, one of these drugs, is an important decision that I don't think is discussed adequately enough with the patient when the decision is made to start the treatment. I think the patient comes in, they have cancer, and the doctor has a treatment, and they give it to them. And there's not a discussion about this has side effects, it's palliative, and if we stop the treatments, the disease is going to grow. So I think that type of information around the timing of starting therapy needs a little bit more instruction for the community oncologist. We've been talking about a lot of key issues regarding systemic therapy whether to start or delay, which agent to use, and how to manage toxicity. Is there one specific issue you think would be most fruitful to focus on from a CME perspective? I think we would be helped as investigators to understand if the reason why people are not using level one agents for the duration that the pivotal trials demonstrated, is it because they view the agents as too toxic They're coming off therapies for what reason? Do they somehow view that these patients are somehow progressing differently than historically what we thought? I would like to understand the question, why in the community setting the duration of therapy seems to be less than the durations of therapy in the pivotal trials? And, Neil, I think the patterns of use surveys suggest the majority of patients are getting sinidinib, which is the recommendation. What you're going to find is they're coming off treatment early because of, and if you asked and you pulled them, why are you taking patient off treatment? Guarantee it's universally going to come down to side effects. So then it's a means to educate both the patient and the physician treating the patient on how to optimally manage these side effects. I think that's the issue. And so oftentimes do we see patients referred in that are on 25 milligrams of Sutent or were just taken off of six weeks of 25 milligrams of Sutent with progressive disease. And one of the first things I do is put them back on Sutent and I give them full dose and optimally manage their side effects and they do fine. It's, it's an education there and how do you get to that is a challenge. But when you say optimally manage side effects, what I've mostly heard before today and today is dose reduction, schedule modification, et cetera. Do you think that's not happening in the community? Well, I think it does. It happens very quickly. So I think it comes down to the comfort level with the cancer and the therapy, the ability to spend the time in your clinic educating the patient on how to manage it. And I think that's where there's probably a little bit of a difference. So as renal cell cancer doctors, we are very comfortable. I'm very comfortable using the drugs that we have on the market for kidney cancer. I've used them in hundreds of patients. I can be very authoritative when I'm talking to a patient about the side effects and how to manage them because I have a lot of practical experience. That really disappears when you have a doctor that's mainly only used Sutent one other time. And there's this concern of your patients read your body language. And if they know that you're not very comfortable, you know, they're certainly not willing to fight through a toxicity unless They feel that that's what's needed to be done. And I don't think they get that level of security from some doctors that they're getting care from. I don't know how else to explain the difference. 
right? Because we educate all the community doctors on the side effects, and we've certainly educated through a variety of means on toxicity management, but it's still not changing the use or the issues there. I mean, listening to this, one of the things that I'm thinking about is just the overall attitude that people have towards toxicity and whether it's not the specific issue, but more the global issue. First of all, I'm not sure how many people understand the perceptions and beliefs that you have that more therapy is going to be better for the patient. The more dose you get in, the more likely you are to control the tumor. It seems almost more like an attitudinal stick-to-it type thing rather than anything specific, but I'm not really sure. I think that's partially right. I mean, I think the issue is when we go in to treat a patient who's, a, let's say they're a new metastatic renal cell, we have a particular aim in mind, and we're going to really try and keep them on the full dose if possible. And so, you know, when we look at our data, we had a look at ours last year. And so the patients who are still on therapy with VEGF TKIs in my practice and also with two other people that work in kidney cancer, it's about the order of 80% at six months, provided they haven't progressed or anything like that. 80% of 80% people percent of the patients are on full dose of sunitinib or serafinib or other agents that we're working with in trial. If we look at the community data that's coming through from some of the insurance payers, it's about 50% if you're lucky in the community. So if you look at that just comparatively, there's a 30% difference in maintenance of patients on a fuller dose of treatment. Now, there's a lot of reasons that potentially explain that, but many practitioners will drop the dose very quickly in the community, whereas those of us who have a little more experience will say, okay, we're managing your toxicity. It gets back to what Bob Mozart was saying about the patient comes in and they got a bit of hypertension and they drop their dose of sutent to 37.5 or 25 instead of saying we need to optimize your antihypertensive regimen and we need to put you on something for diarrhea to intervene to try and maintain that patient at the full dose of 50. And so I think there's a gulf there. And what I'd like to see is, and this is not necessarily NCCN's role, but I'd like to see a set of guidelines similar to what we have for therapy, for toxicity, therapeutic approaches to toxicity for VEGF TKIs, because I think we're going to be using them more across the spectrum of oncology. And it's something that we're not really doing well now. Keeping in mind your thoughts that more of a VEGF TKI is better, a corollary, I guess, would be that an agent with less toxicity and equal dose-for-dose efficacy might yield better outcomes, not just less toxicity, but maybe patients being able to get more prolonged therapy maybe leading to greater efficacy. So, Bob, let's talk about pizopinib as potentially such an agent. And what do we know in general about the differences between the TKIs that are being studied right now? We now have a group of what we would call second or third generation targeted agents against the VEGF pathway that are going to help us understand to what extent targeting that pathway with less off-target toxicity may offer equal or better clinical results or equal or better efficacy results. And this is really the first trial, which is a pizopinib, a phase three randomized trial compared with placebo in a patient group of locally advanced or metastatic kidney cancer. Pizopinib is an oral antiangiogenic inhibitor targeting the VEGF receptor pathway, but also hitting PDGF and CKIT. But most importantly, it has nanomolar inhibitory concentrations against VEGF receptor 1, 2, and 3. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival. For the overall pizopinib study population, the progression-free survival was 9.2 months, uh, more than doubling of the placebo group at 4.2 months. 
Interestingly, pizopinib, now we can have a conversation about the off-target and on-target toxicities. One of the unusual things that pizopinib does a little bit differently than some of the other oral TKIs is that it does produce liver function abnormalities, ALT, AST, and hyperbilirubinemia. Most of those are grade one and two, but there were occasional grade three and grade four requiring dose reductions or dose discontinuations. And what fraction of patients had the LFT abnormalities? About half of the patients. There's a randomized study comparing bezopinib to sunitinib, correct? Correct. And that's going to be where we're really going to get the answers, but I want you to go through more of these data and then get your take on kind of what it looks like indirectly compared right. to Right, so I think in Cora Sternberg's presentation, the health-related quality of life demonstrated no difference. And I think that this was a no very difference nice... from placebo. From placebo. And this was a very nice trial that demonstrated a significant improvement in progression-free survival. A subsequent study at ASCO that was the extension of the open-label portion where patients who were on placebo could cross over to pizopinib really demonstrated a similar spectrum of side effects, a similar benefit with respect to 30% of patients having uh, objective response with those patients benefiting with progression-free survival benefits. So it's pretty clear that as with other studies, the crossover allowed for those patients to be recaptured with a VEGF TKI response. Just to clarify, you're saying the overall quality of life was the same in the treated and the placebo group? As measured by the Global Health Status Quality of Life, EORTC, EQ5D, and EQ5DVAS. Correct. Interesting. Tom, any global thoughts about overall quality of life, particularly compared to sunitinib? Well, I mean, again, it's anecdotal. So my bias would be that, again, some of the long-term toxicities that make the use of sunitinib difficult for patients... We've mentioned them before, the fatigue issue, diarrhea, mucositis, the hand-foot syndrome, appeared to be, in the clinical trial data would support this, uniquely less. So my general view would be that it appears that pizopinib may be more tolerable than sinidinib with long-term use. The side effect profile is certainly different. Different. So what's more predominant? As what Dr. Figlin mentioned, you did see some liver transaminase elevations. You could see elevations in blood pressure. There was some GI-related toxicity. There's the skin hypopigmentation. It's not only just changing of hair color to white. It's also hypopigmentation of the skin. I've actually had an African-American patient who received pizopinib and was developing areas like vitiligo, small areas on the face with the medication. What about efficacy compared to sunitinib? And so clearly, definitive data will result a randomized trial, and the current randomized trial is designed as a non-inferiority study, so with all the caveats of that type of trial design. But based on the data as we know it today, one would say that pizopinib is in the same ballpark of efficacy based on progression-free survival and based on response rate as sinidinib. So Bob, what's your take on this question, efficacy, tolerability, indirectly comparing based on what we have right now? Well, I think that you really needed to do the comparison in a phase three trial I think the study shows that it's a highly active compound. The one toxicity that seems to need to be addressed is the hepatic toxicity with pizopinib. But otherwise, the frequencies of other toxicities which have been problematic with sunitinib, including fatigue and hand-foot syndrome, were reported with less frequency. So I think that the head-to-head study that we're doing now will be critical in terms of comparing adverse events and also the relative efficacy of pizopinib to sunitinib. Our view is that pizopinib, in terms of fatigue, 
is probably better tolerated than sunitinib, but I want to see phase three data to validate that, but that we see a little more hypertension, which is a bit of an issue to manage in some patients than sunitinib. So I think it's a player in the arena. Just to go back to what Mike Atkins said, when we sit back and look at which therapy we're going to give to patients, it's immunotherapy cytokine as one group, VEGF inhibition, mTOR inhibition, and it's a matter of how we optimally deliver that. I think another agent in the area is a good thing. It's a choice. Whatever the result of the pizopinib versus sinitinib trial will be, we'll have the data to look at. We'll be able to make recommendations firmly based upon data as opposed to only having comparisons of trials with no direct comparison. When do you think we might have the data from the phase three study? Probably not for another 24 months. Tom, what do we know about responses or efficacy with one following another? In other words, with pizopinib after sunitinib, with sunitinib after pizopinib, do we have any data, any cases? With those two particular agents in sequence, we don't. But clearly, similarly targeted agents, we do have some modest amounts of sequencing data. And that is a question which we don't have a full answer yet. We know that there appears to be a group of patients that will continue to respond to VEGF inhibition, moving from one VEGF TKI to another VEGF TKI, whether moving from a Vastin or a monoclonal VEGF inhibitor antibody to a VEGF TKI. What we don't know is, is there an optimal sequence? Should you start off with the most potent guy on the block first, or should you save that for later? And that brings up the points that Mike and others have been making today, is we're trying to take the field forward in individualizing therapy and being able to recognize a group of patients that would benefit from one strategy over another strategy. Right now, I would say that for the average patient walking into clinic, the average patient, all things being the same with clear cell kidney cancer walking into the clinic, the most generalizable drugs we have are the VEGF TKIs, the drugs that we know we can give them and see 70 to 80% clinical benefit rate in. There's another player there too, which is bevacizumab and interferon. The challenge would be, and I have not gone through the mental gymnastics in my mind to figure out which exact patient population I would choose for which of these agents. It's unclear, but I think the comparator trial will be very useful for us because then we'll really get a sense is there a significant change in toxicity to make one strategy more better for a patient than another? Do you have any anecdotal clinical feeling having utilized the agent in a lot of patients globally about side effects compared to sunitinib? So my bias with all that that implies is that I think pazopinib appears in my hands to be a little bit more tolerable. When we talk about side effects, we have acute toxicities that occur with these agents. Remember, pazopinib is a continuous dosing drug versus a schedule of four week on, two week off. Then there's the concept of tachyphylaxis to some toxicities that happen over time. So you really need to look at the big picture. The acute toxicities that occur that limit patients from staying on therapy may be different than the long-term side effects that they face that affect the duration of therapy. So I think in my hands, pazopinib appears to be a little bit more tolerable for long-term use. And I think in my hands, the efficacy appears to be very equivalent. Eric, what's your take on this? I think with the increased commoditization of the anti-VEGF products out there, the decisions are increasingly going to be made on tolerability. But it also, I think, reinforces the fact that we are working on the very same pathway and we are ultimately probably not going to cure anybody with this particular line of inquiry. And it really calls out for an understanding of why people fail pizopinib, sunitinib, bevacizumab, 
and what the next generation of Asians should be. Mike? I think although sunitinib and serafinib and bevacizumab and interferon have revolutionized the way we treat kidney cancer, there is still a lot of room for improvement in terms of just a simple inhibiting the VEGF pathway to the maximal amount with minimal side effects. And we don't have yet the ideal drug for doing that. Pazopinib may be a step in that direction. The COMPARES trial will help sort that out. There are a number of other drugs that are coming along that test that even further that inhibit more selectively the VEGF pathway and more powerfully. And we'll have a chance to see whether what the maximum potential is for inhibiting the VEGF pathway in clear cell kidney cancer. At the moment, we can't test that because of drugs that don't inhibit the pathway well enough or we can't give high enough doses because of off-target toxicity. A question that comes up in a lot of different tumors, Bob, is how do these anti-VEGF agents work? And even where's the target? Is it the tumor? Is it the stroma? Is it both? Any thoughts about that in renal cell? You know, I think that we don't really know. Sinitinib has an anti-angiogenesis effect in preclinical work. It also had a direct anti-proliferative effect or cytotoxic effect on cells. So we don't know. Presumably, the effect is mostly on the blood vessels feeding the tumor, but we've also had some data to suggest that there's a direct anti-tumor effect in renal cancer as well. Bob, and we've seen some data in breast cancer suggesting maybe VEGF receptors on the tumor cells could be involved. Any thoughts about that? Well, I think that we're still learning about sunitinib and agents that target the pathway. I think that the initial thoughts that it's at the endothelial cell, predominantly, I think there's an evolution to understanding that sunitinib hits other targets other than the ones that we've mentioned. It's not just a VEGF receptor 1, 2, and 3 inhibitor. We reported in cancer research a couple months ago that it inhibits STAT3, both in the endothelial cell and in the tumor. Remember that one of the evolving benefits of TKI use may be the alteration of the immune system in relationship to the effects of these TKIs on the tumor. Is that an effect that's on the tumor, on the endothelial cell, or on the microenvironment that's around the tumor and the environment? T-regulatory cells are changing. So I think that one of the nice things about having drugs like this, even though we're talking for the oncologist, what's the best one to use, is that we're going to continue to learn the approach and application of these drugs to these and other targets in combination with other things as we move along. Bob, we talked about one clinical research strategy, the development of new agents, and we use pizopinib as an example, and we'll come back to that later in terms of translational work. But what about combining agents with known clinical activity? For example, what were your thoughts about Bob Motzer's study of everolimus and sunitinib? I think the whole area of combination vertical or horizontal inhibition is really worthy of scrutiny. This study by Bob Motzer and his colleagues of everolimus in combination with sunitinib is one of just many examples, and I think highlights some important findings. So first, this was a trial where they were combining oral everolimus, two and a half or five milligrams daily, or weekly, 20 or 30 milligrams, and sunitinib, 37 and a half milligrams or 50 milligrams daily for four weeks. This is one of many examples of combination therapy. There are others in the literature, both in print and in abstract, combining bevacizumab and mTOR inhibition. And I would just encourage the listener to acknowledge that these are all clinical trials-based. 
that they are not yet ready for prime time use, in my view, in the clinical practice of oncology. The clinical practice of oncology is still sequentially based that they have not reached the levels of evidence in the NCCN guidelines that justified use, but certainly provocative in asking questions about how to proceed in the future. What are some of the combinations that have proven to be very toxic? So it turns out that the vertical inhibitors that specifically target VEGF ligand and VEGF receptor are essentially very difficult to combine because you get synergistic toxicities that make them harder. Some of the best regimens to combine seem to be VEGF ligand and mTOR inhibition, where you can almost give full doses of both of those drugs in sequences that are comparable to how the drugs would be administered as single agents. And at least that can justify taking those forward and asking questions. And lastly, I would just say that there's a series of trials currently taking place in the cooperative group and non-cooperative group setting, combining these agents and asking them how they fare relative to single agent therapy. So Bob, what was your take on this, your experience with it in terms of how this combination was tolerated? This was one of a series of studies we did seeking to combine sinitinib with other targeted agents. And it pretty much repeated the same story where because of overlapping toxicities, although initially we could give full doses or close to full doses to patients, they don't tolerate treatment. With this regimen in particular, there was a high dropout rate from toxicity with the combination. So you're not able to give full doses of the sinitinib the toxicity is more than the monotherapy. And the issue now is with these targeted agents, patients could be on them for a long time, but in the combinations, they'd have poor tolerance. What are the specific problems that we're seeing? The overlapping toxicities with this combination were thrombocytopenia and stomatitis, which is quite predictable, and that's what we saw. What are the combinations that you think seem to be working out in terms of toxicity? Bob mentioned, I guess what I've heard about is bevacizumab plus an mTOR inhibitor. The two combinations that are in big randomized trials are everolimus and bevacizumab, which is in a large randomized phase two study in first-line treatment, and temsorolimus and bevacizumab, which is in a large randomized phase three trial in first-line treatment. Those are the two that have at least moved forward into a larger phase three or phase two trial. Mike? Yeah, so just to bring this back to an earlier discussion, one of the potential interests in developing new TKIs that are more selective in their target is that they may be oral equivalents to bevacizumab that might be able to be better combined with a TOR inhibitor or another non-VEGF pathway blocking agent. And so some of the interest in pazopinib or exitinib or the Aveo drug are the hope that not only may it be a more direct inhibitor of the key target, but it might potentially be more combinable. I think it's interesting work. It's something we need to follow up on. And every time we combine something, there are all these little wrinkles that come out and we have to examine them, but it's not been easy. What about the issue of whether or not to actually start therapy or delay? And obviously, we might as well just go ahead and say right off, we're talking about asymptomatic patients, correct? Right. So I I would just say the following. I would agree with that if it was a lung-only patient, maybe someone with N2 or lymph node positive disease that was modest in size, that had a bit of a disease-free interval. I will not wait 
in a person with bone and liver disease? Well, bone mets are going to be symptomatic. Not and- necessarily. I mean, let me put it this way. Whether the bone mets are symptomatic or found on CT scan or bone scan as a I result of screening, I will not wait for a bone metastasis patient, nor will I wait for a person that has objective liver disease. I agree with both of those things. It's burden and pace. So you'd agree if you have a person, even if they're asymptomatic and they come in and they have large volume lung metastases, you treat that person. Yes, I probably would, although I might look back to see if, how quickly they developed. But it's someone who has large volume disease that if they grew 20% was going to cause them symptoms, I'd be treating them. See, I think it's very difficult to get a consensus because there's, I mean, you can say that, but on the other hand, people walk in the door with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. I mean, they're offered therapy. We offer them sunitinib. I don't necessarily wait for another scan. I mean, I think I can tell you that years back in the cytokine era, that's what I used to do. And what I'd find is that you'd say to a person, I'm not going to start your therapy until I see evidence of progressive disease. And then you'd find out a month later that he just went to a different doctor and he's on cytokine treatment. Dave, what about the issue of neoadjuvant systemic therapy of primary renal cell and the related issue of deferred nephrectomy? In the paper, we asked you to comment on evaluating neoadjuvant sunitinib. They accrued patients to the study who were deemed unresectable for a variety of reasons. And interestingly, there was only a median of three cycles given, so 18 weeks of therapy. And if one looks at, for example, the first-line sunitinib study, we know that patients that get sunitinib go on responding with time. In fact, the partial response rate actually continues to climb the more we follow that study. And so the optimal response may not have been seen. Now, that taken, and with the brief period of exposure that we had in this study, the results are still interesting. The key issue, can we convert a patient who's not resectable to one that is? Well, they had three patients that they reported on that became resectable, but there weren't that many of them. And I think this is part of an evolving experience with neoadjuvant therapy. And from that perspective, we very much need studies that examine this and also tap the science related to the pathways being evaluated. There were significant toxicity rates in this population with a 57% experiencing grade three toxicity at some stage. And so from that perspective, what would a community oncologist take home from this? Well, I think the issue is that the patients who had been on sunitinib got through their surgery without any due difficulties and a small proportion of them were rendered resectable. How do we apply that to practice? I think the issue is that you don't need to do a nephrectomy in everybody going on to sunitinib and there may be an opportunity to do a nephrectomy later in those that are not resectable. So Bob and breast cancer is a little bit different but we see people particularly in Europe using prolonged neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. And sometimes these patients might be treated for six or nine months as the tumor gradually shrinks and then they're able to go to breast conservation. Do you think there's any role right now for this kind of strategy, either short term as was done in this study or maybe even longer term? I think that's a good question. I mean, my own bias is that neoadjuvant treatment in patients with primary tumors intact whether it's for local regional disease or metastatic disease, should still be contemplated in, a, in an environment of a clinical research study. How the practitioner might use that, remember that not all urologists feel as comfortable resecting big tumors as urologists at major centers. 
And I would not like to see the community oncologist take on the tactic of using neoadjuvant therapy because the community urologist is not comfortable with a major resection that a center might otherwise be comfortable with. The other place that I think that it's important, and I actually heard about this case just a couple weeks ago, is the rare patient with a single kidney who has a tumor in a single kidney where in order to resect the cancer, one might otherwise have to make that person a nephric, but given a neoadjuvant approach, may be able to perform nephron-sparing surgery and save that person the need for dialysis. So I think there are some certain clinical indications, but for the vast majority of patients with metastatic disease or locally advanced disease, I think it really should only be accomplished in the setting of a clinical trial. One other caveat, we spent a lot of time talking about kidney cancer as a disease. I want to remind everybody that By and large, the overwhelming majority of data in kidney cancer is about clear cell carcinoma. And when we start to talk about the role of surgery in things other than clear cell carcinoma, it raises a whole other group of questions. I also think it's critical to acknowledge that even in the neoadjuvant setting, the patient must have a pathologic diagnosis of cancer prior to the initiation of treatment. And the last thing I would just say is, is to remember that even the presence of measurable, visible lymphadenopathy in the abdomen of a patient with renal cell carcinoma does not mean that, in fact, that lymphadenopathy is metastatic because there are many reactive nodes that have been taken out in kidney cancer patients at surgery without N2 positivity, and there are many patients without clinical evidence on CT of lymphadenopathy that have microscopic disease. So one can't use lymph node involvement in the regional areas, in my view, as a criteria for resectability. Mike? I don't think we know in kidney cancer the concept of shrinking the disease means that you can do a smaller resection margin, especially if you look at the tumor models, which suggest that the way the tumor shrinks is necrosis in the center, preservation of tumor cells at the edge where the blood supply is potentially the best. I'm not sure that the concept of shrinking the disease allows you to spare more normal tissue when you're doing the surgery. And I think we need a little bit more information on that to say that it's even a worthwhile goal to pursue that. We're doing a project looking at patients with liver mets from colon cancer. And there also you have the issue of systemic therapy, quote, in an attempt to make someone resectable. And we know from those studies that even if the tumor goes away, you biopsy the area, there's still tumor cells there. But what they talk about is using systemic therapy more commonly to pull away from critical structures to allow better chance for margins. Eric, is that ever an issue in renal cell cancer? It clearly is an issue in renal cell carcinoma, Neil. And the question really is, are we downsizing or are we downstaging? And the things that make the urologist not want to operate or make this a quote-unquote unresectable would be inferior vena cable involvement is, I think, one of the major things. And is it usually invasion or just external compression? It actually will grow into the inferior vena cava and up the inferior vena cava. So by pulling it back, you're not going to accomplish anything. There's tumor in the vessel. Actually, by pulling it back, by actually making it regress 
out of the inferior vena cava and the renal vein into the kidney proper, you will actually alter the type of surgery. But whether or not we can consistently do that with the existing therapies, I think, is an open question. There is an anecdotal report, and we all, I think, have anecdotes of this happening, but it's not a consistent thing. So whether the current generation of agents is sufficient to actually change the difficulty of surgery for the majority of individuals, I think, is the question that's on the table here. And I would say right now, probably not, despite the fact that our data, which I'm going to present, we have a 50% somewhat shrinkage rate, but my surgeons tell me, they say, that didn't change my approach at all. What about the issue of actually delaying or even avoiding surgery? In this report from Memorial, and Len Saltz is one of the authors on it, where they just reported a consecutive series of cases, because we started to see the colon cancer people doing this two or three years ago, and actually the NSABP has a phase two study just to see what happens. But in terms of just giving people who present with colon cancer metastatic disease no symptoms, basically, or certainly no critical symptoms in terms of bleeding or perforation and just using systemic therapy. And 90% of these people at the point of follow-up had not had surgery. And the idea there that from a palliative point of view, a person who's destined to die avoids this experience. Is that something that's out on the table for renal cell cancer? For example, you have a patient who has a small asymptomatic primary renal cell cancer, no hematuria, no pain, it's not big, and there's widespread symptomatic metastatic disease. Is it really the first step, Tom, is that to take out the kidney? I think that the question is on the table, and I think kidney cancer has been unique compared to other cancers in our whole concept of doing cytoreduction, and everyone in this room is familiar with how we evolved to doing cytoreductive nephrectomy based on the two randomized phase three trials with cytokines. And I think the trial that is ongoing in Europe right now, the Carmena trial that Alvin Ravad is leading, where patients are randomized to sinidinib or also randomized to nephrectomy, then sinidinib, will be a very useful trial to determine whether or not nephrectomy adds anything in regards to either response rate to sinidinib or adds anything into survival is going to be very important. I don't think we're going to want to do nephrectomies on patients outside of establishing tissue diagnosis, outside of palliation for symptoms, pain, or blood in the urine, unless we feel very clear that it's going to provide some qualitative or quantitative benefit to the patient. So what would you do for the patient I just described? You presented a case where someone has large volume of metastatic disease outside, and the kind of approach that I, I need to establish tissue diagnosis. So assuming that's not a problem in some community practices, it is. The, radi- the interventional radiologist is not... What do you mean it's, do you not, mean it's a problem? Well, it's a problem because how you would establish that diagnosis is sticking a needle into one of the most accessible sites. And you can imagine that sometimes the most accessible site is the kidney. And you're trying to stick... And the interventional radiologist is saying, no, we don't stick needles in the kidneys because they bleed. So then you're stuck having to do a urologist going in there and laparoscopically biopsying the might as well remove the kidney. But what you present is a case where maybe 75% of the volume of cancer the patient has is outside of the kidney. How often does that occur, incidentally, that scenario I described? Is it rare or It's It's rarer with someone with a small primary kidney. Usually when you see that extensive metastatic disease, usually it's a pretty sizable kidney tumor, 8, 9, 10. 11 centimeters. But in that type of situation where the bulk would be remaining after nephrectomy would be one in which a lot of people would not pursue nephrectomy. You know, because one of the things that we use as a balance is, will the cytoreduction accomplish cytoreduction? Will you remove the majority of the cancer that's in the patient's body before doing it? And, and please, my colleagues, comment on this, but it's an area of ongoing controversy. Mike? That's clearly a case where I don't think you can really help the patient by doing 
surgery if the majority of their cancer is outside the kidney, so we would treat them systemically. But it's also a relatively unusual presentation for clear cell kidney cancer. And so I think one needs to make sure they have tissue in that setting because you may find out that this is a collecting duct tumor, for example. And in that case, treatment's completely different, and certainly there's no role that's been established for doing cytoreductive nephrectomy. Someone with a collecting duct tumor, they might need that kidney because they're getting platinum-based chemotherapy, theoretically. Or a papillary tumor may be more likely to spread when it's early. So I think, and it's much more important to biopsy the metastatic disease than the primary because a lot of times when you do CAT scans in patients with metastatic cancer from any source, you may find a small lesion in the kidney. And that lesion in the kidney may not be what's causing the disease that's all over the body. So it's much more diagnostically useful to biopsy the metastases to make sure it's compatible with a kidney primary before you plan therapy. Bob, oncologists are used to a paradigm out of breast cancer. Not too common, fortunately, that women present with metastatic disease with a primary. And then they just looked at what's going on in the breast in terms of is it causing any symptoms? Is it a problem? And if it's not, and particularly if there are problems elsewhere, the paradigm is to start with systemic therapy. Is that appropriate in any situations in renal cell cancer? And I mean, even in the NCCN, is that an option to start with systemic therapy in these patients? Yeah, the cytoreductive nephrectomy is done for selected patients. I think that for the most part, most patients, when they're starting, that are unresectable to begin with, their goal is to have the primary tumor taken out at some point. That's their goal. The goal Who's is goal? to have the patient's goal. Patients want to have the tumor shrink and at some point have the primary tumor removed. That's usually the patient's hope. But even in the face of metastatic disease? Even in, that, in terms that of the rational? patient's hope. And I think that this is feasible in certain instances. But with metastatic disease, which is what I'm talking about, not just locally right. unresectable, metastatic disease, are there situations where it's reasonable not to start with a nephrectomy? Oh, yeah. I think that it can go either way. That... The time-tested approach has been to take the kidney out ahead of time. I think there's two studies that show survival benefit, and it wasn't clear to me in those studies how much the survival benefit was from the cytokine therapy. It may have just been debulking the tumor. The efficacy data for all the targeted agents has been established primarily in nephrectomized patients. The other thing is that we have had some instances where with the primary in place, there's been complications with hematuria and so forth with these agents, and we don't know it may be a contributing factor or not, but that's certainly observed that. I think the other thing is, is that, as you mentioned, it's a chronic disease, and oftentimes in end of life for the patient, there can be morbidity associated with a primary tumor in place, including hematuria and pain. These are different diseases, and that's why I'm asking you, because you see these patients, and I'm assuming, because generally I've heard so much pro-nephrectomy discussion, I'm assuming it's not very common that patients can just go through until their death without having symptoms from their primary. Is that the case? That's not the case. That's not the case. I think In patients is. with already symptomatic metastatic disease in a small primary, as long as the primary is not going to add complications to your treatment, such as hematuria that cause you to interrupt treatment and deal with it, I think it's okay to treat the patient's metastatic disease first. And in addition, the Tempsorolimus trial included patients, about a third of them had their primary tumor really? in place. And 
relative to interferon, tempsorolimus did better in that group of patients than it did in the group of patients who had had a nephrectomy ahead of time. Eric, what would you say is the median survival of patients who present with primary intact metastatic disease? Median survival for an individual in this day and age is probably in the order of about two years, and that would be driven from the phase three data that have been generated with sunitinib and the other antiangiogenic agents. So we're, we're talking about a two-year survival now, all comers. That may be better than before, but looking from the outside, that's still a pretty short period of time. Granted, there are outliers that are going both ways, but when the NSABP started to talk about this in colon cancer, they were the same kind of thing. It's going to be a couple years. In that two years, can we avoid a two- or three-month period of morbidity as part of their quality of life? Again, looking at this situation with this kind of surgery, if you can get a patient to go through all this without surgery, do you think it's a major benefit or in quality of life? Yeah, so I would say that it is an important question to answer. Having a surgery is not a trivial matter. Clearly, the only way to answer this is with a prospective trial. And there are two prospective trials that are currently underway internationally, one which is the upfront nephrectomy followed by sunitinib versus no nephrectomy followed by sunitinib, which is the Carmena trial. And there is a trial through the EORTC, which is also about to open, which is asking a slightly different question. It's comparing upfront nephrectomy followed by sunitinib versus three cycles of sunitinib followed by nephrectomy in those individuals where it's considered appropriate to perform the nephrectomy. And that second trial is going to ask the question of whether, once again, we can use a systemic therapy to select for those individuals who should undergo nephrectomy. And it's also going to ask really important questions about the interaction between preceding systemic therapy, the perioperative period, and also the presence or absence of nephrectomy on the impact of sunitinib efficacy. So that trial is actually going to help us, I think, go a long way to answer these critical questions that we're asking around the table. Bob, do we really need to do a randomized trial? Can we just do what they did in colon cancer, phase two study? Let's just see how many well-selected people can avoid surgery. I think the complicating feature in kidney cancer is that we've not talked about how kidney cancer patients are cared for in the United States. Kidney cancer primarily is a disease where the first interface with diagnostic procedures is with the urologist and urologic oncologist. And while the path of growth and change for the metastatic setting has changed dramatically, so has the path of change for the urologic oncologist and the approaches that they take when they approach kidney cancer patients. Whereas years ago, the standard procedure was a radical nephrectomy. And that's a big operation that requires a long postoperative recovery time, takes the ipsilateral adrenal gland out, and oftentimes is associated with morbidity and potential mortality. I think most of us who practice at major centers have seen the evolution to nephron-sparing surgery, to laparoscopic nephrectomies, to procedures that have far less morbidity. It's not to say that we shouldn't be thinking about things as you present it, But I'm often presented now with a patient who undergoes a laparoscopic procedure and the patient is out of the hospital in two to three days and the patient comes with metastatic disease and I'm being asked whether they're ready to start at two weeks. 
And I can tell you that two weeks now for these patients is almost like four to six weeks was a decade ago. So as we change our environment for systemic therapy, the urologists have changed the environment for the surgical procedures, now some of them even being performed robotically. So I would just argue that although the question is a theoretical question that is worthy of thinking about, it's really the small number of patients, at least in our practice, where the urologist says to us, boy, I don't know that I can do this safely, and they go ahead and they do a primary surgical resection to the best of their ability, even though I know the patient up front. And that's why I want to make sure that we recognize that if one looks at the sizes of primary tumors over the last decade with the use of CT and MRI, the sizes of primary tumors have gone down. Yes, there's the still 20% of patients. I'd be interested in my colleagues helping me understand whether the size of the primaries have gone down as well in the metastatic setting. I think they have. And also, I just put one other thing on the table that's a little bit different than breast and colon, is many of us do believe that the primary tumor is a place that is metabolically active that may be producing certain cytokines or molecules that may inhibit or facilitate the use of the approaches that we make. So it's not just an anatomic resection, it is also a biologic resection. To Bob Mozer's point, it's unclear the contribution of interferon in the nephrectomy trials. It might have been that the nephrectomy by itself was the contributing feature. And I'm not sure that that's in fact true for the colorectal patient or the breast cancer patient, where one is being performed primarily for cosmetic reasons. The other is being performed for reasons that maybe aren't as necessary. In kidney cancer, I don't know that we can lump those into those other diseases just yet. Mike? Yeah, so although I'm always for trials, I agree with Bob that I'm not sure we're going to learn as much as you think from these trials. And I think if we're looking for a consensus here, I think that resecting the primary is a reasonable thing to do if it's clear that the primary tumor may in some way impact the course of therapy during that patient's lifetime. And that's a judgment question. And those trials aren't going to necessarily get at that answer because they're going to have all different sizes of primary tumors and all different levels of metastatic disease. And that's not going to necessarily substitute for the judgment that comes into looking at that primary, looking at the biology of the tumor, looking at the extent of metastatic disease and saying, we'll remove this tumor, help this patient, recognizing that for small tumors, we can do it pretty easily and pretty quickly. Tom, obviously there's enormous interest in translational research and oncology in general and renal cell specifically. Can you talk about the work you presented? And actually, Bob Figlin was a co-author last year at ASCO on predictors of response to bezopinib. This trial that I'm going to talk about today, the phase two trial, evaluated pazopinib, and as Dr. Figlin mentioned earlier, it's a VEGF receptor 1, 2, 3, PDGF, and CKID inhibitor. This phase two trial was conducted in patients with clear cell renal cell carcinoma. It utilized a randomized discontinuation design for patients who had either not received prior systemic therapy or those who had received either cytokines, chemotherapy, or bevacizumab. And we reported the results at ASCO last year and ESMO this past year. This trial design included a 12-week run-in period of therapy with pazopinib dosed orally at 800 milligrams daily, 
followed by response assessment via CT scans. Those patients with resist-defined complete response or partial response continued on open-labeled pozopinib. Those with resist-defined progressive disease were taken off study. And then patients who had resist-defined stable disease were randomized in a blinded fashion to receive either pozopinib or to receive placebo. On planned interim analysis after the first 60 patients were enrolled, the partial response rate was 27%, and based upon this robust level of activity, the Independent Data Monitoring Committee recommended discontinuing the randomized discontinuation design, and all patients were crossed over to Pazopinib, and the study continued, therefore, as an open-label, single-arm study. 84% of patients fell within the MSKCC favorable and intermediate risk groups. So the final efficacy analysis that we reported in the study via independent review showed a complete response in three patients, partial response in 33% of patients, stable disease, resist defined in 45% of patients, yielding a combined clinical benefit rate of slightly over 80%. Progression-free survival was 11.9 months, and the duration of response was 68 weeks. And these results are very similar to the results presented in the Phase three trial by Dr. Sternberg and reviewed by Dr. Figlin earlier. I think the toxicities we've discussed about, I think the level of grade three or four toxicities in this Phase two trial were very low, occurring in 2% or less of patients. The most common toxicities were diarrhea, hair color and skin depigmentation occurring in 50% of patients. Hypertension was notable with this agent occurring in 48% of patients and liver transaminase elevations in about 20%. Interestingly, from this phase two trial was that the level of fatigue of 37% and hand-foot syndrome of 12% was much less than seen with other similarly targeted agents such as serafinib and sininib. The efficacy and toxicity results from this phase two trial that we reported suggest that Pazopinib may have a level of efficacy similar to that of sinidinib, which is the current standard of care as frontline therapy for patients with metastatic disease and potentially a more tolerable safety profile. I think probably one of the most important aspects of this phase two trial was the biomarker analysis. And what we were able to show was a correlation with soluble VEGFR2 levels, those being greater than 31% is associated with a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival of approximately 12 months versus soluble VEGFR2 levels less than 31% having a PFS of 10.9 months. Soluble VEGFR2 levels also correlated with tumor response with a very good correlation coefficient and was highly statistically significant. In our 78 patients that we assessed for VHL mutational status, and this was the largest analysis reported to date, we did not find a correlation with the presence of VHL mutation or methylation with progression-free survival or response. We were able to detect mutation or methylation in 90% of patients evaluated, which is higher than initial reports suggesting that VHL abnormalities occurred in 60 to 70% of patients with clear cell renal cell cancer. And I think the likely explanation for that is just an improvement in the signs or the ability to detect these mutations. In regards to development of hypertension, while receiving therapy with pozopinib, we were not able to correlate the development of hypertension, which occurred as a toxicity, again, in about 48% of patients on this study, with either tumor response or progression-free survival. We looked at both diastolic elevations in blood pressure as well as systolic blood pressure elevation. And this is in distinct contrast to recent reports demonstrating an association with the development of hypertension using agents such as bevacizumab and exidinib. What's your takeaway from all this in terms of what you found and where you think it's heading? Well, I think pazopinib is clearly an agent with robust level of activity with a side effect profile that is unique. 
that may make it more tolerable in some selected individuals. As far as the biomarker analysis goes, I think what we were able to confirm is the similar biomarkers that had been identified in clinical trials of other targeted agents of being useful. And I think interestingly was the VHL mutational analysis that we do see that that occurs commonly in patients with clear cell kidney cancer for reasons that are unclear. And I think the ongoing molecular profiling initiatives will help us understand this better, does not appear to be associated with response. And then hypertension's utility as a biomarker, in my mind, is very questionable. It's unclear to me that hypertension is just not an on-target effect or an expected toxicity from these agents. I'm not sure that I believe completely reports that it will be a useful biomarker. There's certainly lots of reasons why or difficulties in measuring hypertension, and there's no standardized way that it was evaluated in the clinical trials that demonstrated it had benefit. Bob, you were a co-author on this work. Were you excited by it, disappointed by it? Where do you think it's heading? Well, I was excited by it. It confirmed the VEGF receptor 2 serum data. It told us that maybe at this point in time we should stop looking at VHL mutations and hypermethylations for prediction of benefit from these targeted agents. I think it's confirmed by the Phase three trial in terms of efficacy, and it moves the field incrementally forward because I think that we can start to ask questions prospectively with biomarkers in the context of clinical trials, but I don't think that they're yet ready for prime time for people practicing clinically to look for those biomarkers to select patients. Mike? We don't have yet a predictive biomarker for response to VEGF pathway targeted agents. And I think it's going to be very hard to have a predictive biomarker for treatments that cause tumor shrinkage in 90% of the patients. The best you can hope for is to identify something that predicts the 10% of patients who aren't going to benefit at all. And that's the way the studies have to be defined. And one would have hoped that VHL wild type might have been what would have predicted that, but it doesn't seem like that's the case. And the data from Cleveland Clinic that looked at sunitinib with VHL typing also suggested that the sunitinib produced responses in VHL wild-type tumor. So that doesn't look like that's going to be the case. So I think we've got to go back and look at those tumors a little more carefully. But the key ones to study are the resistant tumors, the ones that grow right through sunitinib, and see whether we can identify what's unusual about them that would tell us not only that they shouldn't receive VEGF pathway treatment, but should they be treated with a TOR inhibitor, or should we identify a completely different biology in those tumors that need to be targeted. And interestingly, I just want the opinions of my colleagues about the hypertension as a biomarker. That's getting a lot of press and there's excitement generated reports. Oliver Rixey presented a paper looking at the exidinib data in that they did a pharmacokinetic analysis and it confirmed that this concept that higher AUC levels associated with greater efficacy as being an independent marker of efficacy. They also looked at the development of diastolic blood pressure elevations as being an independent marker. I would expect if I thought it was truly an on-target toxicity that they would correlate, they'd be related to each other, more higher AUC, more blood pressure, more, but they were independent. Does anyone have comments on whether you think that would be a useful biomarker of efficacy or not? Tom, what it might show is that it might be actually demonstrating some type of a host phenotype that is defined by the presence or absence of the development of hypertension. 
and whether induction, so that's number one, whether or not that's dependent or independent of, it sounds like it's probably independent of AUC, which again could suggest that this is actually some sort of a host phenotype. And the idea that we would then be able to induce this phenotype by raising the dosing and raising the AUC may actually be, well, it's possible it's going to work, but it's possibly also not going to work if it's really independent of the AUC. So if you have very selective targeted agents that hit the VEGF receptor and that's how they're working, and polymorphisms in the VEGF receptor impact the degree to which you see benefit, and hypertension is a biologic readout of your ability to block the VEGF receptor, then treating patients to hypertension is, could easily be a biologic marker of optimally inhibiting the VEGF receptor, which might potentially optimize anti-tumor effects. I think that's a theory that's worth testing in the absence of having some other assay that tells you whether you're giving enough treatment to block that receptor, whether that receptor is no longer phosphorylated, hypertension is certainly an easy approach to do that. So it's a question is, I don't think blood pressure measurement is going to be like taking the pulse for a patient on digoxin. It's not going to be that linear, but some of the drugs, and maybe not some of the drugs, are going to, I think it's going to be some sort of marker of hitting a target. Just what that target is and how it varies requires further evaluation. I agree with Mike Atkins. It, it's something that is worth looking at. And the drug that seems most consistent, apart from Bevis, is Exitinib. I think that that may be worth looking at as it evolves in its development to see whether targeting a diastolic blood pressure of 90 with a dose escalation is even doable because there may be other side effects that preclude that. What do we know about Exitinib in terms of side effects and toxicity and how close are we to having it available in the clinic? It's been in a number of obviously phase one and phase two trials. It's in a phase three trial, the AXIS study for patients that have failed first-line therapy and a variety of different ones are allowed. Any standard approved first-line therapy and Exitinib has been compared to Serafinib, so two different forms of VEGF tyrosine kinase. What do we know about how it differs compared to the other TKIs? I think the issue is that from the phase two studies that we've seen, it looks to have a very significant partial response rate, at least equivalent to that of Sinitinib and Pazopinib, and maybe better and would be higher than serafinib. What about the profile of what it hits, so to speak? Well, they all overlap. So the relative proclivity of one drug to hit a particular kinase and not others, it's probably one of our more potent VEGF receptor 2 inhibitors, but also has some off-target effects, as do they all. Let me get your comments on a couple of other issues. Beginning first, Eric, with adjuvant therapy. There's a trial randomizing between sunitinib, serafinib, and placebo. What about treatment off study? So first of all, at this point in time, there are no adjuvant therapies that have been shown to provide any benefit in renal cell carcinoma. This has been conclusively shown with immunotherapy that it does not provide benefit. There are several clinical trials currently underway asking the question of what the role is of anti-angiogenic agents in the adjuvant setting. And there is a large trial in the USA and there are some other trials in Europe that are underway. These trials are accruing. They've been modified because of the fact that there is clear challenges in giving these drugs to the patients in the adjuvant setting. These trials are critically important and need to be completed. And in the non-study setting, 
there is absolutely no role for any of these agents for individuals who have high-risk renal cell carcinoma. The assumption is that because there is some benefit in the metastatic setting that these agents may provide some benefit in the adjuvant setting, but that's a hypothesis that needs to be proven. There's, again, with the data that have been generated in animal models, there's a small possibility that needs to be examined that there could actually be a deleterious effect, and I sincerely hope that that's not the case. But the only way that we're actually going to get to the bottom of this is actually by completing these trials. What about, Bob, short and long-term toxicity in the adjuvant setting? What do we know about it? Any concerns about it? How is it to actually manage patients on these trials? Well, I don't think we have a very large data set. In the patients that I've managed as part of the intergroup study, I have been surprised by the intolerance to therapies that I would have otherwise expected better tolerance to. And I don't know whether that is because a person in the adjuvant setting who has a chance of cure with no further therapy has a different set of expectations of what an adjuvant treatment is than a person who has metastatic disease who does not have that opportunity for cure. But I certainly have had to take patients both on sunitinib and serafinib as part of the Southwest Oncology Group trial and stop treatments for things that I would have otherwise thought I did not have to stop had the person had metastatic disease. Are they metabolizing the drugs differently? It's hard to imagine from my perspective that. Are we preparing them the same way for the toxicity? We have the same conversation with the metastatic patient, but clearly their ability and desire to tolerate the side effects in the setting of what might have otherwise been a surgically curable disease are different than what I would have hoped or expected. And I think that's resulted in a modification in the size of the cooperative group trial a change in the dosing and schedule where the doses are started off a little bit smaller and then built up if you tolerate. And I'm not really sure that that's the right thing to do. I mean, I understand that it's the right thing to do in the context of a trial, but generally in oncology, what we do is we take the drugs that work in the advanced disease setting and we test the dose and schedule in the adjuvant setting. We don't modify in the approach to the adjuvant setting. So I think it'll be interesting to see what comes up. It's nice that there's a placebo control, so we'll have some very objective evidence, but it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. And I agree completely with Eric, and that is absent a clinical trial in my own practice, we do not offer adjuvant treatment. What about pseudo-adjuvant, you know, after removal of metastatic disease, for example? I include those in the same population of patients as the high-risk resected patient. If a person has a long disease-free interval, has a solitary lesion that's resected, I generally follow those patients carefully, and then at the time of next progression, assuming that they're not surgical candidates, then talk about metastatic disease treatment. I don't empirically place those patients on adjuvant therapy. Tom? Yeah, I think that's a common question that patients will come in the door with, is especially those with high-risk disease, can they receive adjuvant therapy off of a study? And that may be a question that some urologists may ask an oncologist about, but I think after you sit there and explain exactly what Dr. Figlin has just explained, that there is a lack of data and outside of a clinical trial setting that we would not recommend using the agents, then most patients in my experience have been very comfortable with that choice. Either they're going to enroll onto a trial or they're going to undergo expectant or watchful waiting management. What I don't know is if you've completed an adjuvant therapy for in this SWOG intergroup ASSURE trial, it's one year of therapy, and then eight months later, you develop recurrent disease. Does that mean that you did not respond to the drug? For instance, you randomized to sunidinib, 
and you develop recurrent disease eight months after completing your year, should you be using sininib again, or should you be going to choose another therapy? We're certainly going to come up with a whole different set of questions for patients who have received these drugs in the adjuvant setting. I think that there's a couple of problems with these trials. First, we don't know that these agents can be curative. The hope is if you get them into the minimal metastatic disease setting that you can actually eliminate the last tumor cell. The real value, I think, in adjuvant studies are to prevent recurrence in a population of patients, not just delay recurrence, especially if that delayed recurrence means that the tumor may be less sensitive to the agent that they received in the metastatic setting. So there's a lot of reasons why there's an important question to ask, but even if the trial is positive, it may not be a clinically useful approach. And the second issue is that it's great that we've been able to accrue so quickly to this trial that shows a lot of enthusiasm for this approach, but I think there are a lot of patients who we're going to find out on this trial who have a very low risk of recurrence, who end up maybe that may be the group who's less motivated to keep taking the therapy and are potentially diluting out our ability to actually see a difference. And I think that there's potentially a role for if we could have done this and we're confident that we could have accrued this well of limiting the trial to a group of patients where there were likely to be more events in a quicker period of time so that we could actually get this answer quicker than we're going to get from the current trials. Eric, what about the point that Bob made, his perception that people have more difficulty with these drugs in the adjuvant setting? It's an interesting point, Neil. So another group that I've seen this in, these sort of otherwise well population, we have a a trial in a VHL population currently. So people who have hereditary von Hippel-Lindau disease, who have renal cell carcinomas, usually small non-metastatic hemangioblastomas, and a number of other lesions, And we have a trial currently underway where these so far 15 otherwise healthy individuals have been enrolled on that. And it's been interesting to see that their tolerance to sunitinib has also been lower than what we've seen in the metastatic population. So despite our best efforts to prepare individuals, I think the change from the state of wellness to the state of being on these agents The perception of that and the ability to deal with that in the otherwise well population is just different from the individuals who have basically been told that they have a relatively short period of survival. I'm not sure that it's a pharmacodynamic difference. I think it is a difference in what people are willing to put up with when they're not told that they have a very short lifespan. One final issue that we actually got quite a few questions about from the U.S. oncology oncologists, which is management of non-clear cell renal cancer. Tom? That is an area that we don't have a lot of information about, but we do have some. Right now, the label indications for the commercially available drugs, sininib, serafinib, temsorolimus, and everolimus do not restrict based on histologic subtype. So they're available for all types of renal cell carcinoma. And it is true, the majority of renal cell carcinoma subtype that a community oncologist is going to see is clear cell type. But about 15, 20% give or take, will have a non-clear cell histology. And then how do you manage them becomes challenging. Certainly, we would like to have some of these patients enrolled into clinical trials. There are certain subtypes, for instance, the papillary type, that have defined genetic abnormalities where we have other targeted agents 
Such as? CMED inhibitors that are ongoing evaluation. So being able to have access to a clinical trial with a targeted therapy directed to your cancer would be very attractive. Is there published data using the commercially available agents in the non-clear cell type? There is. I don't know that I would say it's the strongest data. A lot of the data comes from the large expanded access programs with the drugs where there was some degree of activity, generally less than what you see with the clear cell type. We've seen in certain clinical trials with mTOR inhibitors that they have not required a histologic subtype to go on, so there was quite a mixture of folks, again, the majority having clear cell where there was a benefit on analysis. So, I mean, I think that the answer would be if, if you have the availability of a clinical trial for the specific subtype, that enrolling onto or referring for the clinical trial would be a value. Otherwise, certainly using one of the commercially available drugs would be reasonable. Mike? Yeah, so I'll make a couple of points here. First of all, there's data from the Temsorolimus phase 3 trial that relative to interferon, Temsorolimus did better in patients whose tumors had non-clear cell features than in those who had clear cell features. And that may be because interferon did worse, but also at least Temsorolimus didn't do worse compared to those other tumors. But I would suspect that the majority of those patients were clear cell tumors with non-clear cell features such as sarcomatoid rather than truly papillary or truly chromophobe tumors. So I think that we have that type of data to go on. Second point is that, and this comes from this, is that we did an analysis of central versus a local review of pathology. And we found that if you centrally reviewed them, a lot of things that were called non-clear cell actually are clear cell with non-clear cell features. And so unless there's a central review of the large compassionate use databases that talk about activity of serafinib or sunitinib in those tumor types, I think it's likely that what you're potentially talking about is not a pure papillary or pure chromophobe, but actually a clear cell that has some of those other features. And third, I think we can learn a little bit from the hereditary tumor models that Marston Linehan is doing with patients, and then in animal models, looking at these non-clear cell hereditary variants that might help us to treat the sporadic. And there's data emerging that suggests that for the papillary type 1, that CMED inhibitors might be useful in those trials are going forward in certain subset look good. There's data from chromophobe that suggests that the TOR pathway may be important, but that's probably not the total answer. And for papillary type 2, there's data suggesting that HIF is also important, and in particular that LDHA is important, and that developing an agent that could target that might be potentially useful for those tumors. Are there any agents that are helpful in non-clear cell that are not used in clear cell? I mean, chemotherapy, et cetera? For collecting duct tumor, chemotherapy, type of chemotherapy that you'd use in transitional cell cancer of the bladder or is quite effective in that setting, and that should be the standard of treatment for those patients rather than going to sunitinib or uh, TOR inhibitor. So in general, are you saying that often you might go through the same algorithm with non-clear cells with clear cell? I do completely differently. If it's truly a non-clear cell tumor, I'm looking at different protocols, and I'm emphasizing what the surgeon can do because I am not sure that we have systemic treatments that are useful. I think that's right. I think the message for community oncologists is you can give anything to these patients and get a benefit, but if you've got a non-clear cell patient, you need to look for a clinical trial and maximize surgical therapy.